This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. Everything good, everything Nubians. Hi, hi, Dr. Carr. How are you? I'm good. You know, I'm I'm sauntered, bathed, and ready to be educated. Um, yes. this crazy world that we're living in. And uh, I want to shout out Nubian brother Oz uh from London, all the way from across the pond. He posted this this morning. I was like, should we sit with this for a minute? This uh summit of the Americas in Los Angeles. Yes, let's sit with sit with it. You uh Earlier in the week, had shared a clip. I said, "Okay, we can talk about that." And but we said last week we we're going to talk about the Summit of Americas. So no better uh, way to start than with what we're about to hear. What are we about to hear? All right, I'm going to just hit play. Ready? Wait. The, Prime Minister, who that is? Wait. Uh, the chair now recognizes the Honorable Mia Motley, Prime Minister of Barbados. <laughs> They need new music. They they need to come in with a drum with a <laughs> Barbados drum, right? Yeah. Well, of course they got they, they they'll get to it. <laughs> I, I feel like I feel like the the theme song to Barbados is gonna change soon. Okay. Oh, no Bless my eyes this morning. Your sun is on the rise again. The way earthly things are going, anything can happen. Mr. Secretary, there is so much trouble in the world. Excellencies, there is so much trouble in the world. Heads of government, there is so much trouble in the world. Heads of state, there is so much trouble in the world. I've chosen the language of Bob Marley this morning not because I'm an apostle of Bob, as you probably have realized by now, but also because he reminds us of the day-to-day -day reality of our people and of our citizens. And we have come to Los Angeles hopeful that we're not just going to engage in speeches or we're not just going to engage in platitudes, but we go home to make a difference to people at perhaps the most difficult time this world has seen in a hundred years. We have three global crises, and any one is sufficient to bring us down. The climate crisis hurts from you here in California in fires, to us in the Caribbean through the heart attack of hurricanes, and the chronic NCDs of water crises and droughts, or floods depending on where you go. We fight the pandemic. And even as we talk about the pandemic, we need to start to qualify it because we fight the COVID pandemic without realizing that the slow onset pandemic of antimicrobial resistance is already upon us, being fueled further by how we farm, how we treat each other with the abuse of antibiotics and how we literally allow those things to flow into our environment and contaminate our water system. And as if that was not enough, we now fight the prices of food and fuel and fertilizer. 
knowing full well that the only destination thereafter is going to be a debt crisis and an economic crisis if we do not intervene to break the slide. My friends, how much more evidence do we need? You see, men sailing on their ego trip, blast off on their spaceship, million miles from reality. No care for you, no care for me. If I could have sung it, you would have joined me. But I don't need you to join me in the words of this song. I need you to join us in the chorus of action that our people need, not want. Our people need immediate intervention. Six-week crops and 12-week crops is what is going to feed our people. We need to be able to shield them from the price of fertilizer that is making their efforts almost impossible. We need equally to recognize, as you heard Prime Minister Brown and Prime Minister Davis say already this morning, that the debt crisis is already among many developing countries. We simply do not have the fiscal space to respond to crises not spawned by ourselves, but spawned by others. And we are facing a double jeopardy. Our countries were those from whom wealth was extracted in order to build the developed world. Our countries were left at independence with no compact, no money to finance basic rights of housing and healthcare and education. And when we fought to do it, now we find ourselves having those efforts crowded out, literally, by our inability to be able to face and find the money because we are using it to recover from climate crises, not of our own making. Where does the double jeopardy come? That it is the very industrial revolution that the blood, sweat, and tears of our ancestors finance that is now causing us not to be able to respond to the needs of our people in the most basic of ways that humanity requires. My friends, there is so much trouble in the world. And we think we found a solution, but we want to tell people only about financing after the climate crisis. We need to be able to prepare before the crisis so we can reduce what we have to spend by seven times. We need to recognize that adaptation has no private sector follower because there's no return on investment in adapting to the climate realities. That is the function of the state. And therefore, the international community is required in the justice of the moment to help us prevent loss of life and property for a crisis we didn't create. We need to reform the international financial institutions architecture. How can we have an international bank for reconstruction and development that does not reconstruct and develop in today's world? Where is the reconstruction from the climate crisis being financed? Where is the reconstruction from the pandemic being financed, the post-pandemic recovery? Where is the platform for middle-income countries that house 75% of the world's poor? But because they're middle-income, we don't remember that. Where is the climate finance being targeted to 
justifiably and fairly so, when the numbers show that only 15% of climate finance is going to the climate vulnerable countries. I've not come here just to use words. Let us be practical. We have a duty to solve a few problems. And I think that the format of this meeting needs to change if we are to be able to see real progress and not simply to be part of the problem. We need to talk with each other and not talk at each other as we are doing in set piece speeches. We need to engage and see how we can make a difference in a real way. We have migrants coming, not because they choose to come, but because it is their last option. They don't choose to leave who they love and where they love willingly. And when they come, we now know that we don't need to treat them poorly because this year has shown that there's a dignified way to treat migrants. We've seen that in Europe. We need to see it in the Americas. And I don't place that burden on the United States of America alone. I place it on all of us, including my own country, because we cannot be part of the solution by simply talking from outside and not literally putting our shoulders to the plow. The International Organization of Migrants needs our support. And we need to make sure that as we reform the organization of American states, that instead of it seeking to become a political player, it needs to become a player that simply brings opportunity to our people in the Americas from Alaska to Chile. And how does that come? If we did nothing else in the next decade in the OAS, but to allow our people to become bilingual and trilingual, people under 18 and adults, then we would change the economic possibilities of this hemisphere in ways that we can't even contemplate. We need to ensure that if we fight this climate crisis injustice, then we fight it not just as small island developing states and developing countries calling for fairness for our nations, but we provide that fairness to our people. And how do I mean? We have taken a decision in Barbados that there can be no award of any contracts for renewable energy without taking into account the bounty that must go to our people. And therefore, accordingly this year, I announced that every rooftop that is owned by anyone in Barbados will have the right to have placed on it as of right, not a choice, not a right to apply, as of right. Photovoltaic systems from two and a half kilowatts to five to 10 to 20. Why? Because we don't own individually the wind, the sea, and the sun. It is the patrimony of the nation. And if we are to move our people out of poverty, then we must use the bounty that is afforded to us through renewable energy, good jobs, but also good investment to allow our people to benefit. And we ask you to recognize that we must not only engage in platitudinous comments about what we can achieve with net zero. Net zero does not mean fossil fuel free. It means still that there will be 20% energy coming from fossil fuels. We know natural gas is that clean fuel, but as we do it, let us recognize that it is not possible to exclude those developing countries who have now the opportunity to finance their way to net zero simply because we want to keep the world in the construct of the old imperial order in which it is found. Whether it is a reform of the international financial institutions or whether it is moving ourselves into a new reality, we cannot continue to cement the inequalities of an old imperial order. 
And that is why I've come also to thank President Biden and Vice President Harris. For too long, there has been benign neglect. And the Partnership for the Americas, as well as the Climate Partnership Pact 2030, offers us a real possibility of hope. But it is up to each of us to keep and hold each other accountable. We are happy that coming out of yesterday, we made progress that we didn't see the day before. And we hope that tomorrow, we will build on the subcommittees that will make a real difference on energy security, food security, and finance access that will mean that we can look our people in the face and say we have done right by you. We cannot achieve it overnight, but we are moving in the right direction. And we must also address the reality of exclusion, not only exclusion of individuals in our society through racism and class prejudice, but exclusion of countries from the ability to participate in the financial system by having us de-risk, by having correspondent banks, Belize, 83% of its banks have been de-risked. How do the people of Belize do trade with the rest of the world, with the United States of America, if their people can't bank, can't send remittances, if we are told that our institutions are too small to matter and therefore it is better not to do business with us? Are we to become financial pariahs in a world at the same time that we seek to bring equity? There is so much trouble in this world. If we think we've found a solution, it must not, in the words of Bob, be another illusion. We ask you to also recognize that let us use our cooperative efforts to build joint platforms for procurement so that we can reduce the price of critical goods from vaccines to water pipes to all other kinds of things that are impairing our ability to deliver proper services to our people. Africa did it with the African Medical Supplies Platform. Why can't we have an American supplies platform that treats to the most critical supplies? And why? In the Caribbean, we make an order and they say, what? That's too small for us. We announced a tax holiday for electric vehicles. We cannot get the supply of electric vehicles. Will Brazil help us? Will India help us? Will the United States or will Canada help us? We can't get access to batteries in order to help us become net zero by 2030. But yet we want to come on these platforms and talk about it. These are the real problems that I hope PAC 2030 will allow us to solve. And when we finish with PAC 2030, Canada and Chile and all of the others, can we create that platform for that joint procurement to reduce the price of supplies and to guarantee access to our people? My friends, I've spoken too long, but I cannot leave this platform without saying that we have to speak some home truths to each other. It's wrong that Cuba and Venezuela, Nicaragua are not here because as you heard from Bahamas, that we need to speak with those with whom we disagree. And we don't only need to narrow cast. That's the part of the problem of the world. There's too much narrow casting instead of broadcasting. There's too much talking at instead of talking with. But secondly, those countries must equally recognize that you cannot want to fully participate if you're not prepared equally to engage and to see progress. And the simple priority must be people, not ideology. If we can make progress for people, if we can allow people to speak different languages, if we can create a minimum floor of education and health care for the people of the Americas, then my friends, the City of Angels would have played 
its role in the history of the Americas. I hope that we leave here today conscious that we must never again come to a summit to talk at each other, but simply to talk with each other in partnership and for the purpose of the prosperity of our people. Thank you. No, wait, wait. Let it keep playing for a minute. Thank you very, very much, uh, Prime Minister. Um, in the words of Bob, uh, no woman, no cry. Don't shed no tears. Let's act. We can sing a redemption song together. Thank you. Uh, to Secretary Blinken there, the cheering before we get into Mia more Motley, since he evoked Bob Marley's redemption song. I'm trying to remember how that song begins. Old pirates, yeah, they rabbi, stole life from the merchant ship. Minutes after they took I from the bottomless pit. But my hand was made strong. By the hand of the Almighty, we forward in this generation triumphantly. Won't you help to sing these songs of freedom? Because all I ever had, redemption song. It ain't got a damn thing to do with you, Secretary Blinken. Come on back, President. <laughs> We can sing a redemption song together. The first two words of the song, oh, pirates. That's you, Rock. Yeah, they rabbi. Sold out to the merchant ship. Anthony Blinken, come on. Yeah, I love how the social structure tried to rein her back in. Who is she to them? No woman, no cry. You better go there. I remember when we used to sing in the government yard in Trenchtown. You better go read those lyrics too. I know you was hanging around in college and undergrad, probably with your black girlfriend you couldn't bring home. I mean, I understand. And you know all the lyrics. That's very beautiful. He had to say something though, didn't he? Didn't he, Prof? He had to say something. Girl, to say, yeah. He bodied the world. The she whole world. bodied the entire world. <laughs> I was goaded into watching the sham of a hearing on Thursday night. I oh, was doing 20 million others, which they said, right. eh, what is that rating number? They said, I think I read that uh, that's around like a, a, a big Monday night football game or maybe the Rose Parade of Roses or the Macy's Parade. So in other words, it didn't hit even State of the Union numbers, but the two of us watched it along with a lot of other people. I suspect, suspect a lot of people right here watched it, but go, go ahead. So, yeah. In my spirit, I was like, why am I watching this? Unless it, it leads to uh, handcuffs for Trump and a lot of other Congress people who gave out, gave out blueprints and tours, uh, unless they get locked up and Trump can never run again, where, where are we going? And I have zero faith in Merrick Garland to do what he needs to do. And that we even have to, oh, please, Merrick Garland, do do something. Please, Tis James, do something. It's, it's to me, you know, this should have been an outrage from day one. January 6th should not, January 7th should have happened. Something should have happened on January 7th, which it didn't. So I'm like, okay, this is what everyone should have been watching. So um, Dr. Carr, what is this summit? <laughs> what is this summit of America's and why why didn't Cuba show up and what what was supposed to happen where Mia Motley said, give me that damn mic, snatched the mic and bodied the entire hit the hit everybody in the head with the mic and then dropped it. 
or and announced to people that we aren't well let me not say we there is no we announced perhaps made well no nobody there was surprised i'm trying to i'm forming for the language this morning because we're easing into it today a week before juneteenth and i'm looking forward to next week and we'll talk about this a little bit later now that juneteenth is a federal holiday in the united states of america again co-mingling the the social structure and the governance kind of narratives but in a way that i think could be very interesting um this is all about community and she said it near the end there we have to talk with each other and even her firm but inclusive and firm that but firm and inclusive uh engagement in absent in, in absentia of cuba nicaragua several of the countries that did not attend and did not send delegations in fact uh the united states of america did not invite several countries the united states of america did not invite joe biden in fact made a point not to invite cuba not to invite uh daniel ortega in nicaragua uh not to invite nicolas maduro in in venezuela which is why uh manuel lopez obrador the president of mexico said well you know you shouldn't you, you don't get to pick who you invite and that's supposed to be some of the americas all of us right so yeah i'm not coming either <laughs> and then uh saint vincent and the grenadines their prime minister said not only am i not coming we ain't sending no delegation grenada didn't come you heard her name check um brown and davis who are the prime ministers uh of antigua and barbuda and uh, bahamas respectively um so there were a number the, uh, of the 30 plus countries in the hemisphere only about 20 came uh, but many of the countries that did come and even the ones that did not come are left leaning they have left leaning political uh leadership chile mexico honduras guatemala el salvador bolivia in fact uh they didn't come the so-called triangle you know they always talk about these people marching up the yucatan peninsula to make their way into the united states none of those countries came but the summit of the americas is a regular meeting this is the ninth of them that has taken place since the 60s um i think 1967 uruguay hosted the summit of the americas that was um same year that the united states government as we talked about last year a year before last now uh helped undermine and overthrow the government of chile and salvador allende on 9 11. um chile hosted it in fact in 1998 by then their right wing pinochet had been in power for so long that he was gone but you know they were safe uh 2001 canada hosted it and uh it in this current summit of the americas in la actually prime minister motley met with justin trudeau on the eve of the summit this past week to discuss this question of climate change to discuss this question of trying to restructure relationships so that this can be prevented justin trudeau had a busy week he was out in norad and colorado but justin trudeau's pursuing a um and canada is pursuing a foreign policy that is different than the United States. We're going to talk about the United States as a declining world power in a minute. Uh, you know, so Anthony Blinken coming in at the end, trying to, you know, trying to, you know, 
establish some kind of, oh, yeah, you know, no woman, no cry. That's just it was just about as effective as the United States power in Latin America these days in the Caribbean. But uh, and that power is waning, actually. Uh, Argentina in 2005, Trinidad and Tobago actually hosted in 2009. Uh, Colombia, usually safely white wing. But as we talked about last week, there's a runoff in the election coming up now. In fact, oh, the presidential runoff is on the federal holiday. Yeah, it's of Juneteenth. It's next Saturday. Uh, the leading candidate, leftist candidate and the prime minister, I'm sorry, the vice presidential candidate is Afro-Colombian sister. Uh, the, the, the person who came in second, um, kind of like this guy who's running for mayor of Los Angeles. A right wing fascist who the United States would love to see in power because they don't want Colombia leadership to tip toward the left. Because what you're seeing in Latin America now is a decided shift in political leadership. The United States has worked assiduously to undermine any leadership that would sound anywhere even remotely like Mia Amor Miley, which is why I'm wondering how long it's going to take for them to try to attack her. But you see, she's very, very <laughs> go ahead. <laughs> I think what happened with this is you're right. The power has shifted. Oh yeah. For sure. Narrow cast versus broadcast. I'm watching um, a TV show. Um, what the hell is the name of it? I can't remember the name of it, but it's about us going to, to the moon and I'm listening to Kennedy talk is about Apple, uh, Apple, Apple TV um, for all mankind. Yeah. Yeah. The kind yeah. of, kind of Afro, not Afro Euro futurism. They got the black girl asking that, but I mean, yeah, yeah, <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's fascinating, really. Yeah. I'm laughing at the myth making in real time that so many of our parents and grandparents and, and our grandparents and parents, people who had Kennedy, Jesus, and Martin Luther King on their wall, you know, the, the indoctrination into this greatness and, and us being first to the moon and all it. I mean, it was myth making in real time. We got to see while people starved at home, while people were being brutalized back here, just like sending folk off the water, fight for freedoms they don't have here. At some point, people go, hey, wait a minute. I still got to sit at the back of the bus, but I just, the Germans could come here. They were whole ass Nazis. Y'all fought them and they can come here and sit in the front of a restaurant and I can't. Something's wrong here. And what Mia Motley, I think, did in a 15 minute speech was show the power shift now. Like y'all are full of oh, crap. Absolutely did. That's why that was so important. You played that. That's right. And no longer no, keep going, keep going. I, I didn't I just want to check. I want to co-sign what you're saying. Okay, we don't believe you. Uh, and here's your history, you know. And as a result of that, either you're gonna live up to it or we are going to not need you, which is what I'm hearing too. You know, there's gonna be other ways that we're gonna come together to to supply ourselves with the need that we have, the needs that we have. And I feel like you know, individually living in a country with similar constructs. All of us who live in community must start to come to that same conclusion that Mia Motley and other nations have come to is that we can't depend on this government or this country or this system or this social structure to save us. We have to save ourselves. And I'm, uh, I'm, I'm wondering how this is all going to play out, but I think it's going to play out well since we're living with uh, Octavia Butler for the next few weeks. Um, I feel or, like or not, as Octavia Butler shows us in Parable of the Soul. Right, but she gave us a blueprint for for what could happen or what probably is happening in real time. Right. But in that, I think is also a lesson for how to protect ourselves from that inevitable. 
No, it's absolutely true. I think you know it's interesting that you you bring up that that Apple TV series uh, for all mankind because it is a form of science fiction. But as we know, all science fiction. And by the way, everyone who is not yet here, when y'all see this later on on YouTube, and shout out to the thousand are here right now, and to the thirteen hundred plus who were here Monday night when you recruited into the conversation our brother John Jennings. Who, that was just a I mean that was very it was visionary on your part to bring him in for those of you who don't know John Jennings who's won all the awards as an illustrator as a scholar he's an academic professor out in the UC system uh, a proud graduate of the Jackson State University and by the way I don't know if you've seen the cover uh, prof of the new Sports Illustrated no. with Deion Sanders on the cover with two of his ball players and I'm saying okay see when they put you on the cover of Sports Illustrated they telling the white world this is a problem so anyway i'm just saying anytime you see okay now we got a problem right because he's oh jackson state he's in first jackson state and now all hbcus they're warning their friends that this could be a problem but anyway uh so john jennings of course went to professor jennings went to jackson state. but that conversation where he, yeah you go yes parable of the sower in fact that's his yeah and of course before that he did uh this one with damian duffy kindred right so this is this is the one they did and shout out to our brother uraeus who you had to force to take a bow who was in volume one of the black comics you know under who is jason wise because you know uraeus is uh you know take i guess he takes a page from uh, wallace bad don't you know bad boys move in silence and violence <laughs> but anyway the <laughs> there it is black comics returns yeah that, that's the second volume they did and i don't know and in in yeah, he's in the first one too. Yeah, he's in the first one too. Yeah, that's right. And and I wonder if uh, they should reprint that because between those two volumes, you see an outlay of many of those the current generation following in the steps of uh the Ollie Harringtons and so many others, uh illustrators, comic artists who are doing a lot of work. And one of the things John Jennings talked about was on Monday night was the because we talked about what Octavia Butler is talking about. He talked about his very conscious decision to, as he lives in South LA now, he and his wife and their child, their child and family. And thank you James, for loaning him to us for as long as you did. Cause what, how long was he supposed to stay? Uh, Professor? Thirty minutes. Right. And he stayed damn near the whole time we was in there. <laughs> and again, the numbers keep ticking up every week. We get more and more people in, and just, you know, by, by the way, we know we're finishing Parable of the Sower on Monday night. So we're going to devote the whole two hours to, to that conversation. You know, but to that point, you know, a lot of us are in Nubia because there's not a lot of folk in our regular lives. And this is regular life now. Uh, who we yeah. can talk to. John stayed, his CEO, his wife was like, okay, you can do this. <laughs> he stayed as he confessed, you know, my wife, I can't really talk to her about what I'm doing. And well, then that was John, crazy. Yeah, and he said, now I have a whole, there's a thousand plus people here who want to hear what I have to say, and you know what I'm doing? You know, he was so excited to be in community to talk about his life passion, his life's passion with people who actually are reading it and care about it. And for many of us, we seem like we feel like we're unicorns or we're outliers or we're, you know, but in this community, nah, we are, we're normal. This is That's the right. new normal. So I'm just. This, this is the new normal. I'm glad you said that because I think Tracy Sherrod had that same experience. Our brother Howard French, who, by the way, Howard just did a piece in the New York Review of Books. Howard is firing on all cylinders now. I had to add, I, well, we maybe talk about that next week too. But, uh, you know, had that same experience. It's like, what is this? I mean, you reach out to them, say, okay, then they come in and they realize, 
oh, this ain't like 30 or 40 people, or this is not me at a conference with 100 people and 12 in the room, the fourth paper on a four-person pe panel at a scholarly associate, or this isn't me on MSNBC trying hard to hold my tongue as, and then nobody really watching. No, how many people are here? Wait, how many? Wait, how, wait, and y'all read? Wait, and y'all asking me questions? It was like, a revelation and this is why this thing is burgeoning now and i think the connection with the direct connection we can draw to mia more motley is the social structure works very hard to curate how we think about things because all of the elements and if we think about again our, our african studies framework social structure who are africans to other people governance structure who are africans to each other that is in a very specific context that we ask those questions that's an africana studies framework that is developed around human activity so in other words social structures exist in all human societies you can ask that governance question of any discrete group you're trying to tease out in terms of their relationship to the structures that surround them okay now every one of those other four categories science and technology, ways of knowing, movement and memory, cultural meaning making are simply dimensions of human activity. The reason we use them in relation to the social structure, I'm sorry, the governance structure about people, who they are to each other in the Africana studies framework is because Africana studies at its root as a process for ordering how we think and discuss, not directing what we think or discuss, but ordering how we have discussions has to clear space for us to have conversations with each other because the the subject the collective subject of african people in the contemporary world remains underimagined because anytime we're having conversations with each other two things are going on at the same time we are we're having conversations with each other in ways that don't always we don't always think about who the we is, we think we are having conversations with each other. So when young people say, for the culture, that's, he did that for the culture. What is the culture you're talking about? Well, you know, the culture is when, no, you haven't really thought about this because even the you you think you're constructing was constructed by somebody else. You know, I was watching the Roots Picnic last weekend, you know, and I'm watching, you know, Black Thought and he brings out Rick Ross and I'm saying I'm not a Rick Ross fan. Not because Rick Ross isn't talented, not be but because what you're talking about, well, that's my experience. Okay, but is that the full range of Africana experiences, or has it been curated by a culture that only wants to see you shooting each other? Because remember, when you stray off and, and go off script, as you saw, you, you showed me the clip, of the, the white dude talking about what the company's willing won't sell in hip hop, then they come for you and cancel you. So that's the first of the two. The second of the two is not only are we often have conversations based on who other people have led us to think we are, but the other thing is we don't, often allow ourselves to talk to one another without trying to anticipate how other people are going to think about the conversation. So that's, again, why, you know, our brother uh, John Jennings came in and, you know, after acclimating to the moment, which only took a split second, he realized, oh, wow, this is... And so he kept saying, well, you know, the CEO hadn't said anything. Uh, my, our family is in town, so maybe I, he kept looking back like... And then he realized he just been here the whole time. And then he said, and when he said, I don't have a lot of people I can talk to about this. Well, of course, his network and Eurasia's network, the network of black illustrators, black writers, black comics artists, black science fiction creatives, 
And I'll use the label cautiously because we had a long conversation about that. As many of you remember, if you're not yet in Nubia, you would have to be in Nubia to see this. But we had a long conversation about even the concept of Afrofuturism, which, as John said, was named by a white person, which is no big deal. But his friend, Ronaldo Anderson, who's Temple University, talks about Afrofuturism 2.0. And then, of course, my thing was, why do we even call it any of that? Because even the gestures we make toward Africana, you know, there are people, Nanete Okorafa and others, you know, many others, who are deeply engaging in conversation with Africana and pulling out of that concept. And Octavia Butler did the same thing. I was rereading some of her uh, research notes in terms of how and comments on how she did research about some of the African pieces that come into her work. And you see her doing it. It's not enough to paint something black, get some red, black and green or uh, uh, Chinese dashiki. Yes, the ones everybody wearing now. I'm like, oh, yes, every serious right now. But at any rate, and call that Afro future. No, but that series you evoked for all mankind. And for those of you who, you know, not wasting your money on Apple. And by the way, shout out to Apple. I was reading in Financial Times. You probably saw it, Prof, where Apple is now going to go into business as a bank. The buy now, pay later. They're going to link it to Apple Pay. They're not going to finance it through their normal partner, which I think is JP Morgan, who is their partner. But they got enough money now where they're going to allow you to pay on time, which means they're going to make you money off the interest. And so Mia Amor Motley's discussion about networks is very informed. We're going to come back to this in a minute. We really haven't left it, but I shout out to Apple. Now back to the point. Apple TV has a series, of course, and you're looking at the, how they financing all of these series. And that's easy. Every time y'all click something, you have, uh, and Chuck D, by the way, we talk about this since June is Black Music Month. I was at the National Museum of African American History and Culture last night for a conversation that Chuck D had for about an hour uh, on something called music that shake, that shook the world. He curated for Audible, a talking book where he talks about these are the songs that shook the world. And he was uh, asking some of the young people, you know why they call it podcast, right? And you silence, which I was kind of stunned because it's kind of obvious to us. He said, because of iPods, it was an iPod. You know, he said, and he said, why y'all give Apple all that credit? for a street <laughs> you think it's like calling something a xerox machine right so anyway um on apple tv they have this series for all mankind which is about human beings and space exploration but of course as you said prop they 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 back map it to the 50s it's basically an alternate history so kennedy what if he's not assassinated you know did reagan win the election okay did nixon win the election okay you know it you know and then 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 the third season so if y'all want to but but what you're seeing is what they're really doing which octavia butler is doing which all speculative fiction which is what john was very careful to call this category speculative fiction and then you tell me science fiction and octavia butler says this herself i guess y'all call this science fiction but what we're really trying to do is get at and this is what all these things are trying to get at alternate realities and ways to critique the realities we're in now whether it be philip dick in the 1950s if you saw the film minority report that's from a short story by philip dick i robot you saw that that's from the 1950s if you saw for example uh the man in the high castle yes philip k dick in fact i pulled a novel if i could over here you know what if the nazis won and the japanese won i mean all this alternative fiction and then you see some of these cats now with the, the figure what if the south won the civil war which of course they did but that's a conversation for another day that's what we're kind of seeing in the hearings on thursday night but the point is that all that speculative fiction is really driven at trying to get at critiquing contemporary society, critiquing historical society and coming forward. Now, what Mia Amor Motley laid out in Los Angeles yesterday, day before yesterday, 
was not just a vision of the possible, but a very clear articulation of what is already taking place. So what I mean by that, we heard her, for example, mention, what was it, uh, PAC 2030? Mm-hmm. On Wednesday at the Summit of the Americas, uh, Carlos Yaromilo, who is the World Bank's Vice President for Latin America and the Caribbean, met with the heads of state. Why? We got to get some alternative financing going on. Climate change. Remember, Mia Moore Motley met with Justin Trudeau before the summit started this week on this question of climate change. When we hear that speech at the end of the summit, she basically talking to everybody, but she's specifically talking to the United States. Let's do some numbers. China. China in 2000, around 2001, 2002, engaged in about $18 billion worth of trade with Latin American, Central American, and Caribbean countries. Let's take a guess how much they engaged in in 2021. I'll tell you, $449 billion. Okay, let's be very clear about this. <laughs> See, China's already in TNT. China's already in Barbados. China, China's already the biggest trading partner in Latin America, Brazil. Balanzaro uh, had to be convinced to come. Now, Balanzaro is their man, is, is the white world's man in Brazil. Balanzaro, the fascist, they call him the Trump of Brazil. Let me see if I have, uh, come on, son. This is the Financial Times from yesterday. Yesterday. Friday. Yeah. No. Friday, that's on immigrants. We're going to come to immigrants in a minute. So it must have been in this one because I pulled them both. This is Tuesday. Tuesday. Oh, that's African decarbonization, which means, no, actually it was Friday. There were two articles in here. We're going to come back to immigration in about a minute and a half, but I want to see if I can find it. Uh, yeah, here we are. Bolanzaro is the right-wing president of Brazil. That's China's biggest trade partner in what is soon going to be a half a trillion dollar investment in trade. Uh, that Belt and Road Initiative, there are 21 countries, I think, in Latin America, the Caribbean, Central America, who are part of China's global Belt and Road Initiative. they already in. The United States can't catch up. We're going to come back to the United States as a declining world power in a second. Yeah, I believe what I said. You know, when I was in, <laughs> when I was living in Columbus, Ohio, myself and, and uh, several other, well, I believe you was one of those people, Watkins, Troy Allen, uh, um, who else? Brian Water Harris was in that crew, Calfine Ben Horace. We used to buy an hour of radio time on Saturday morning at the local black radio station um, in Columbus. It was cheap. We bought it at 10 o'clock in part because 10 o'clock Saturday morning, older people were watching, you know, listening to radio, whoever. But, you know, teenagers, for the most part, weren't listening to black radio at that time. Why? Because at 10 o'clock, you, do, you, do you remember what used to be on cable television at 10 o'clock on Saturday mornings, uh, MTV? Uh, your MTV raps? Your MTV raps, no question. So that's why that was one of the reasons the the, the 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 cost to buy that hour was cheap. So we had something called Free Your Mind. And we would be on there, you know, reading from books, talking about issues. You know, we've been doing this a long time. That would have been, oh my God, around 1991, 1992. So Golden Age Hip Hop kind of, we can compete with Fat Five Freddy, but we record and then we would 
rush after the hour was over over to the east side of columbus to the african center for study and worship shout out to mariba kelsey um who of course um just brilliant visionary brother still alive still in uh his birthday's coming up he'll be i think what 95 or 96 but anyway i mean just one of our jagness and one members of association for study of classical african civilizations but anyway we would rush over there and we had one of them tape uh cassette tape duplicators that we had bought after going to Farrakhan speeches and Abel Muhammad and then we saw how the Nation of Islam would do it. You used to be you, you hear a speech and then when before you left, they had a, a damn phalanx of these record these these duplicating machines. You put one cassette in and each brick had like three uh spools or six spools, and you put the blank cassettes in and then they spin quick and then they got it, they, they sell it to you. Well, we would go and rush to the African Center. We bought one. We had we put the original in. There were three, spool them out, boom, 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 and then the people would come and we would sell the tapes for ten dollars a piece, and that's how we got the money to stay on the air. <laughs> so anyway, for the next week, we keep paying. So anyway, we used to say, okay, we know y'all don't believe us, so we are gonna read you some good white sources. So anyway, <laughs> so that's how I went through all that to say. So uh, yeah, the United States is a declining world power. It's probably and so I'm gonna read you a good white source. This is Jed Etsy's new book, The Future of Decline: Anglo-American Culture at Its Limits. I want to talk to this guy because his thesis is it just came out Stanford University Press 2022. And what he's writing about is and from a from a very accessible. I mean, he's, he's not saying anything different in some ways than Stephen Marsh, the next civil war, those people. But he is not. He's a humanist. And so his background, really, he studied uh, England, Imperial England. And what he's saying is what happened to Imperial England is now happening to the United States. He says the peak of U.S. power, 1945, global power. And it began to recede in the 1970s. And so people are saying, oh, this is a brilliant analysis. And I'm laughing to myself because I'm saying, clearly y'all didn't listen to Gil Scott Heron. Just go listen to Gil Scott Heron, B-Movie. Because Gil Scott Heron said that in B-Movie in the early 80s. After having said it for years before, Chuck D made that point last night. He said, you know, he said, now we have a couple of generations who listen with their eyes, not their ears. And he said, we now have to see it, the moving image. He said, when I was coming up, you had to listen to music. He said, I'm not saying we don't listen now, but he said, we, we have to now listen and comprehend. He, he said, in fact, I'm old enough to remember when they sent your poor car home and they had something called reading and comprehension. Do you remember that? <laughs> reading and comprehension. <laughs> you got a grade for comprehension, right? I'm not crazy, right? It wasn't just us in Tennessee. <laughs> Comprehension somehow disappeared. But anyway, I, 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 I said all that to say that, uh, you know, he says, when you listen to music, you should listen to what is being said as well. And I'm thinking about Gil Scott Heron, who said in 1981, I think it's when B-Movie came out. That was on, was it on Reflections? I think the album was Reflections, where, he, you know, he's doing his spoke, so-called spoken word uh and, and he's playing in the background and he's talking about how the United States wants to go back to nostalgia. They want to go back to yesterday, even last week if they can. And they say, you know, now, so that's why they elected Ronald the Reagan, as he called it. They said they elected Ronald the Reagan, he said, because they the person they wanted was no longer available, John Wayne. And so he said, since they couldn't get John Wayne, they got a fake John Wayne. And he said, but the problem they have with nostalgia is they don't understand the United States is in decline. And then he said, the Arabs have bought 
the second world and put a firm down payment on the first one. And then he said, which he's talking about, the oil crisis, of course. Gerald Ford, those of you old enough to remember, and Richard Nixon. Well, of course, what um, Professor Etsy is writing about is that that is where in the 70s you see the beginning of the recession of American power. It didn't last long. And the irony is, of course, that Gil Scott Heron said that. He said what Jesse said, but of course, you know, cultural meaning making, movement and memory, these issues will come back again when we talk about this music. Anyway, the point I'm trying to make, about to make is this. The United States, and I'll skip over a bunch of other stuff that I was thinking about in this context, but to just get to the main point, the United States has already given up, been forced to give up its superpower role. It's by this is the last century where the United States will have the largest economy in the world. China's going to have the largest economy. We say, well, capitalism won't go away. No, it won't. But what will capitalism look like? Think about what Prime Minister Motley just said. She did not enter the conversation she had, that 15-minute conversation, as a straight-up revolutionary. You heard her say, I quoted Bob Marley, but as many of you know by now, because I know what y'all going to try to do. Y'all going to try to say, she wants to burn it all. Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. But I tell you what, if you got ears to listen, you understand what I'm saying. And all policymakers heard a very different speech than what we heard. We heard with our hearts and we heard with our ears. But if if you know what's going on in terms of the political deals and the economic deals around the world and what's going on, Mia Moore Motley was speaking to a lot of different audiences at once. And one of the audiences she's speaking to are the people in the world, the financiers, the corporations, who are very clear that the United States don't even hold that kind of weight no more. You understand? And so when they had that meeting earlier this week, um, what they call the Pacific Council on International Policy and the VP for the Caribbean and Latin America from the World Bank came and talked to them. The United States and its puppet uh, institutions, because remember 1945 is really the beginning of the summit of American international power. And what Etsy Chronicles is, that was 1945. In other words, World War II ends effectively British global power. He says the British global power really extends as the superpower from the early 19th century after the, the Napoleonic Wars, 1815. Shout out to the Haitians for breaking the back of Napoleon, forcing them to have to refinance, all that kind of thing, to 1945, by the end of World War II. Because remember, Germany tries to catch up in this white-on-white -white crime called the international uh, political system. And, you know, they tried in World War One, then they had a little halftime break, and then they came back, World War Two. By the end of it's over, England's capacity is in shambles. The United States emerges during World War I, then World War II. They're going to consolidate their colonies in the Western Hemisphere. They're going to now reach into the United, uh, into the Eastern Hemisphere. And they didn't have colonies in Africa with the exception of Liberia, direct colonies anyway. But then they said, we're going to create this North, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO, and we're going to extend our power. Well, that requires a couple of things. It requires them to at least put a better face on domestic policy, which is the concession, among other things, the concession to... Uh, black folk in terms of civil rights and voting rights, this kind of thing, because you can't now go around the world, which is mostly non-white, and sell yourself as the superpower because you got Russia, you got China out there saying these boys is racist. So you can't really keep that up. So people think that, and we talk, we've talked about this many times, so I won't talk about it much more right now, but you, 
you tend to think that the domestic civil rights movement, black freedom movement was somehow successful because of the organizing of black folk in this country alone. Well, that's simply not true. That is the anchoring pillar, but it's in an international context that the United States can't afford as it projects itself as this global power to continue to do what it's doing to black people and ultimately the concessions it makes in the 1950s, 60s, 70s, which are reacted to violently, including January 6, 2021, by white people for whom whiteness is their center of their life, their identity. But the United States, in terms of domestic policy, policymakers realize that they're going to have to make some concessions. So they ease a pressure valve that really benefits the black middle class and upper class more than anyone else. So let me, I'll put a pin in that and come back to it again. Because, But what we're seeing now is with the 1970s forward, you begin to see a decline in American power. U.S. power, I want to say American power. And what me or more Motley was doing in that speech is letting the world know that we know. And letting the world know that y'all don't even hold that kind of weight no more. And we are already in bed with all kinds of people, including your brother, Justin Trudeau. In other words, and... You know, while we all talking, we got a little country, but you know what? It's a human right to the sun and the wind. So everybody going to get that. You, you got that kind of weight? Oh, baby. I look, I look at this little island right here. Well, we're going to be the model, you know? And guess what? We're not alone. You heard Davidson Brown, the prime ministers that came up before me. They said the same thing, but I'm going to put a little pin in this right now. Why aren't you talking to Cuba and Venezuela, baby? And then, then, then she turned around with the pregnancy turn like, but, if, but Cuba and Venezuela, if you're going to talk, you got to talk. You can't talk at. We got to have a conversation. In fact, we just need to restructure. In fact, we need to restructure this whole economic. In fact, this finance arrangement game y'all talking about. Y'all know 75%, three quarters of the world's poor people are in these quote unquote second tier nations, developing nations. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she's just telling the hey, U.S., you do know we got all this money in China. And uh, yeah. In other words, she's not just saying what should be. She letting them know that you know, we already started without you. Now, the only question is what you're going to do in the United States, what you're going to do because you are a declining superpower. And in fact, let me read uh, Oh, what I was going to say about Brazil. Joe Biden, United States, had to beg Bolsonaro to come. Bolsonaro is the fascist in Brazil. Bolsonaro came, but the United States got multiple problems going on right now. They got a coalition against Russia that consists of white people and three, four other people. Africans sitting it out, the Caribbean sitting it out, Latin America sitting it out, China sitting it out. So in the United States, if you just watch US TV or look at social media, you think that this world coalition against the Russians. That ain't true. Oh, that ain't true. Now that don't mean, as John Henry Clark used to always say, in some stories, it ain't no good guys. That doesn't mean that Russia is right. And that's going to piss off a lot of ideologues, but I feel like me or more Motley, you got to be pragmatic about this. You want to win an argument or you want to survive? Again, Octavia Butler leading us through a parable of swords, that very question, you know, when she's critiquing Christianity and her father, who she loves, said the greatest man in the world, but I stopped believing in my father's God at the beginning. You know what I'm saying? So, but the point is this. Balanzaro in Brazil been a good partner, but he ain't willing to distance himself from Russia. He just left from over there saying we got to talk to the Russians. So he ain't no perfect partner for U.S. foreign policy in terms of what these white boys trying to do at that level. But 
They need him there. Well, guess what? He may not be able to come much longer. This is from the Financial Times. Same paper I'm going to read from a couple of times. This is a headline from yesterday. Lula aims to scrap public spending cap and aid Brazil's poor. And of course, we know who Lula is. That's Luis Inacio Lula da Silva, the former president who they worked hard in the hemisphere to get rid of. You heard me a more motley name check the Organization of American States. That's the criminal enterprise that the United States runs out of Washington, D.C. If you go downtown D.C., you pass their headquarters all the time to try to keep these Caribbean and Latin American and Central American countries in check called the OAS, Organization of American States. Every time they try to overthrow the government in Venezuela, they get the Organization of American States to say, we condemn the brutal dictatorship of uh, Hugo Chavez. I'm sorry, all you toothless uh, people in Appalachia and the deep south who don't want no health care, who swear that Donald Trump won the election and somehow it was the dead uh, body of and the ghost of Hugo Chavez of Venezuela who somehow rigged the machines because the only reason you know the name Hugo Chavez, which I suspect you can't spell, is because you keep watching the same Fox News that didn't show the hearings the other night. But the point is that the Organization of American States is always in there to hit whoever the United States wants to hit over the head, over the head. So when did you hear Prime Minister Motley say, we need to reorganize the Organization of American States? Oh, shit. See, it's different in 1960 or 61 when um, Fidel Castro comes to the United States to the UN and stays in the Hotel Teresa, meets with Malcolm X, and is talking from the podium. This is different than Kwame Nkrumah talking at the UN and coming to the White House and John Kennedy introducing him at the same time that he plotting to see if he can get him out of power. It's different than Patrice Lumumba in the Congo in 1960-61 before the CIA colludes with the Belgians and everybody else to kill him, cut his body up, put it in Nevada acid. No, that's 2022, and we have already made the deal with the Chinese. I'm just kind of giving you a notification. This ain't really a, it's a courtesy out here in LA, the city of angels. Don't you love the shade that the prime minister dropped out? But anyway, oh, by the way, Los Angeles, the city of angels, where if you can name the streets in Los Angeles, you can name most of the Catholic saints. We know it was colonized by the Spanish. Guess who was also at the summit of the Americas? The Spanish. Why was Spain there? Well, many places, Spain former colonies. Let me put a pin in this Lula thing, and then I'll come back to what I'm about to say in terms of immigration and how it relates to why Spain is there. Because the thing they did sign, this Los Angeles Declaration, which was signed yesterday, dealt with immigration. We're going to talk about that in a second. Anyway, the point is, Balanzaro from Brazil, the Trump of Brazil, the fascist in Brazil, who is part of the continued attempt for the United States to keep Brazil in check by making sure no leftist is elected, including uh, Lula da Silva, who was the president of Brazil. Then was driven out of office. They claim corruption because he trying to expand to the poor. Some of that same stuff that we heard Prime Minister Motley talking about. Well, they get him out. They got a criminal enterprise going on. Real, real corruption, to quote Paul Robeson from the Emperor Jones. Uh, there's big stealing like uh, I does and little stealing like you does. Big stealing is international corporations, finance, right? Finance capital, that kind of thing. And little stealing is Lula da Silva, is, uh, they missing uh, five real, and uh, we think it, that he took it to his house and he got two cars. The stuff they put in the newspapers to get you, to throw you off the scent. The company that owns the new paper is the real criminal enterprise. The headline about somebody got three cars in their garage and you don't know how they got it, that's little stealing. That's what they want you to look at. But Balanzaro is part of the big stealing. They had to get Lula out. Now, Lula is not a complete, you know, he's not without his problems, obviously, but the Workers' Party represented as two left for the United States. Well, guess what? Bolazaro did come 
Bonzaros, who still won't get rid of the Russians, won't abandon the Russians, which is a problem for the U.S. leadership. But he still he did come to the summit of the Americas. He might not be able to come after October. Why? Because Lula, who they put in prison for two years for corruption, but then they nullified the conviction because it was all a setup trying to get him in jail so that he couldn't do what? Run for president. Lula da Silva is running back for president again. Lula, uh, Luis Inacio Lula da Silva would scrap Brazil's constitutionally mandated spending cap, overhaul taxation, and boost government spending to put the poor and the workers back into the budget if the veteran left winger returns to the presidency in October's election, according to a draft manifesto circulated by his campaign. Why is that important? And again, that's why we read the Financial Times. The Financial Times is to the English speaking and beyond world what the Wall Street Journal is to the United States. In other words, follow the money it's a follow the money newspaper guess who's nervous the investors they are nervous in fact uh let me see victor sabo investment director for emerging markets debt at aberdeen described the manifesto as quote more state less private sector and potentially looser fiscal policy adding the workers party instinct is to go for more public spending and investments because right now the brazil federal budget spends about two percent of its budget on the poor that's what they wanted. Finance capital, running shit, making money, come to tourism, do whatever you want about. Lula's like, yeah, we got to, you know what? And then they got the fiscal austerity. In other words, you can't spend more than you have. We can't go into debt. So they got that cap. You know, that's what the, the, the white nationalist party here is always talking about. Oh, deficits, deficits, deficits. You got to have a spending cap. You can't put anything in the budget you can't pay for lest you get in power, at which point you raid the damn corporate, uh, the public treasury and give a tax cut to your friends. The whole thing is about criminal activity. Well, in Brazil, they got a spending cap. Lula's like, damn the cap. We got to help the poor. We got to restructure. The market people are terrified. And so the guy... Dealing with emerging markets debts at one of these places, FT uh, tracks, says the only problem with public spending in Brazil it is it's not really efficient. And furthermore, we've learned that it's the prime source of corruption. They're already floating the idea. Anytime you spend it on the poor, gotta be corruption. Gotta be corruption. Now, see, Motley, Motley is almost like a scat back. When I was living in Philly many years, the Philadelphia Eagles had a cat named Brian Westbrook. You remember Brian Westbrook? Uh, <laughs> Brian Westbrook wasn't a bruising running back and he wasn't a little little guy he was strong and powerful enough to survive a hit and to give you a hit and small and nimble enough Sean McCoy came after him to do the same kind of thing I look at Mia Moore Motley it's like she too little for you to just grab but she will if it's a head on head she can't headbutt you and put your ass on your back and make it to you know she can hit the gap she can run around the corner she can do whatever she didn't oh so see in this case i'm talking about now brazil is big so you're going to attack probably if lula wins and he starts spending money on the poor they're going to say see it's corruption now mia Moore motley said everybody has a right to the wind and the sun so therefore we everybody gets to put some solar panels on the roof i'm wondering how she too little for you to really gin up in the press and Barbados. We found out the company putting solar panels on. Uh, that's a cousin of Prime Minister Motley. Yeah, that ain't going to work. And she too strong for you to do that either because it's going to come clean. And how much you want to bet that the people she going to allow, the government in Barbados going to allow in to do that work, it's not going to be a U.S. financing, which is probably what they told the people at the World Bank that came to talk to them early this week. United States don't concede the World Bank is also headquartered here in D.C. That's the United States. But Asian Development Bank, where is that? Oh, Beijing. 
<laughs> Hold up. Wait, so the Chinese giving out loans? Yeah. See, Mia Moore Motley was almost, she was making a plea. She was making a demand, but she was also giving a FYI. Oh, we already got deals with other people. And your friend, your cousin up there in Canada, Justin. Yeah, I met with him before I even came up here. You're surrounded, baby. JB, what you doing, man? What you doing? But in terms of immigration, they signed an immigration agreement. It's called the Los Angeles Declaration. They trying to put a cap on, hold on, son. They trying to put a cap on, here we are. They trying to put a cap on immigration. And the law, and it was in today's New York Times, this morning's New York Times. Let me see if I can find that quick and I'm gonna come back to this immigration number because again, mass media will have you believe in one thing. And if you don't do your own research, and I'm not even talking about deep research, just read the damn papers every day. You can see that it's just simply not true. All right, hold on. Let me get to national, which is where they had the summit of the Americas, which is fascinating to me. Uh, give me a five, four, three. Oh, I'm gonna come back to that. Two visiting port. Oh, yeah, Biden was in the port of Los Angeles. Uh, Biden and Latin American leaders reached agreement on migration. This is what they say the LA Declaration. Uh, here's the LA Declaration, Los Angeles. President Biden and leaders of Latin American countries signed a new agreement on Friday to confront the consequences of mass migration, making spe specific numerical pledges to allow more people fleeing political and economic strife to cross their borders. The agreement, called the Los Angeles uh, Declaration on Migration and Protection, commits the United States to taking 20,000 refugees from Latin America during the next two years. Oh, by the way, oh, yeah, I'll keep reading. I'll just read it straight. A threefold increase, according to White House officials. Now, you know that shovel mouth bastard governor of Texas, Abbott, and his pinch nose uh, lieutenant governor, and all them white racists in those cities that, uh, in those in those states, rather, in the South and beyond, but in the South, because, you know, all the states of the American South share a border with Mexico, like Mississippi, you know, the border of Mexico and Mississippi, Georgia, you know, the border with Georgia and Mexico, you know, Florida, the border with, wait. They're going to give him hell about this. But see, Biden is caught between a rock and a rock. <laughs> the big rock is the hemisphere. Mia Moore Motley letting you know, look, I know you got problems with them corn pone crackers up there. And I know your little friend who think he going to somehow say no woman, no crying redemption song think he making up to me. But baby, in the words of the Eagle song, we already gone. We already gone. I'm here as a courtesy. Yeah, Mr. I'm trying to help you. Let me help. Let me help you. And if that, that was, uh, I love, she's always, let, let me help you. Now, now it isn't all that. Why? Because global warming is real. And you heard her lead out with that. She talked about those triple threats. You know, she talked about COVID. She talked about, uh, you know, our farmers dealing with six month to 12 month crops. And this fertilizer thing is killing us. Don't you think China's going to help them with that? Damn right they are. Why? Because who's going to buy the surplus once they out? See, the United States ain't got the muscle no more to call up like Condoleezza Rice did, the Trinis, and when they was trying to take out um, Aristide and Haiti and say, look, you know, we buy your surplus stuff now. If you do, y'all better don't let Aristide come Trinidad now. Click. And so during CARICOM, Trinidad kind of backed off of support for Aristide when the United States engineered that coup. But y'all ain't got that kind of muscle no more. You still got muscle, but you ain't got muscle like you used to have muscle. She's talking about fertilizer. She's also letting them know, look, we're taking, you know, meetings on who's going to help us with this fertilizer issue. 
It could be you or it could be somebody else. I'm just saying, let me help you. Let me let me help you help yourself. But global warming, which was the big one, she has been sounding an alarm. She's not the first, but she is the most effective person at this moment as the face of this. And of course, she is one of the leaders in CARICOM. She's talking about global warming because that will wipe the Caribbean out. They're islands, y'all. But guess what? That's just the first stage. We heard John Jennings talking about it on Monday night. We were talking about Octavia Butler and we we're walking through this possibility. And, you know, we asked him, say, well, what about this climate change? He says, all my friends telling me that at this point, it's past the event horizon. All we're talking about now is managing change. And that's what Octavia Butler is writing about in the parable series. We're talking about managing change. Mira Moore Motley is like, you know, we got to get to the renewable energies, but let's be clear. We know that even when we get to this net zero, 20% of it's going to be natural gas anyway. Let's talk natural gas. But we can't have these uh, vampire vulture corporations coming in. Wait, excuse me for a minute. Yes, sir? Oh, President G, good to see you, bro. Hold on, Joe. Yeah, this natural gas. What y'all, y'all need natural. Okay, let's do it. Hold on, give me a second. Uh, let's talk, y'all. Some of the Americas. In other words, she letting you know. <laughs> y'all not coming in here to rape us again. This is how we got here in the first place, Anthony Blinken. Really? Old pirates. Yeah, they robbed Sold out to the merchant ships minutes after they took out from the bottomless pit. That's that barracoon we spent a month talking about. But my hand was made strong by the hand of the Almighty. We forward in this generation triumphantly. Oh, won't you help me sing these songs of freedom? Because all I ever had was redemption songs. In other words, what she's saying to them is, come on, come on in here. As the sister said, when the police is going to lose that, you about to lose your job, get this dance. <laughs> in other words, get this dance. In other words, come on in here and with humanity, because you ain't even got that kind of muscle no more. You ask back to the article. Biden says, our common humanity demands that we care for our neighbors by working together, Mr. Biden said during the final day of the Summit of the Americas, flanked by the leaders of the other countries that signed the agreement. Let's look at the numbers. Uh, let's see. Mexico said it would accept as many as 20,000 more temporary workers to start up a new program for up to 20,000 people from Guatemala who is look who are looking for work. Guatemala, Guatemala, Guatemala. Guatemala was one of them people that Biden said he don't want to come. But Obrador in Mexico is like, yeah, well, we'll, we'll take 20,000 from Guatemala. Why? Because you act like everybody lead a country is coming to Texas. <laughs> That ain't true. And you also act like people come to your country because they love America. That's what you tell the people on TV, because y'all swear this is the greatest country in the world. Y'all read uh, Jed Estes book. He said one of the ways the United States going to have to adjust is the first thing you got to give up is this idea this is the greatest country in the world. Because as long as you hold on to that, you will continue to frame all of your problems in the context of you want to return to some past glory. That's why I loved seeing Congressman Benny Thompson to chair that committee. If I still was a victim of propaganda, I would have been very moved by Congressman Thompson's opening remarks. You know, he's I'm from Mississippi. But I've, yeah, you also filed a lawsuit against Trump and them and the Republican Party everybody using the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which is a very smart strategy. I had to check up and see what the status of the lawsuit is because they tried to overthrow the government and the Civil Rights Act of 1866, which predates the 14th Amendment, explicitly talks about the penalty for that. It's still good law. We know that. We talked about Byron Allen, how he used it. But I mean, it's cool. The point is this. Then we heard Congresswoman Cheney a white nationalist, an open white nationalist whose father uh, 
you know, if the international law really meant something, probably could never set foot outside the country because he'd be arrested and tried in The Hague along with George W. Bush. But she's getting the best reviews of all because the white nationalists love her. Why? You could be a white nationalist and say, but I ain't no crazy mother like Donald Trump. Okay. And she said, one of these days, y'all going to remember. Okay. The Lincoln Project, everybody, they trying to say they country. What Jed Estee is saying is you can't save it. It's already gone. And if you keep going back to nostalgia, as Gil Scott Heron said in B-Movie, if you keep going back to nostalgia as your basis for returning America to its greatest glory, and believe me, that's what everybody is doing when they say this is the greatest country in the world. Because my question is, <laughs> really? How is this the greatest country in the world? Because only in America. Okay, you keep opening your mouth, put your brain on display. Really? Only in America? Really? Only in America? And then you keep saying crazy stuff like our ideals. What is that? When they wrote that document, your ass was in a field with your shirt off with a whip on your back. Well, I know, but through this series of amendments and give it up and then get ready for real good. Look, give it up, Benny. I understand, Congressman Thompson. I do understand, brother. I understand. This is the thing you have to hang your hat on. But please understand this. And listen, you can hear it in me and Motley's uh, remarks. The thing you're hanging your hat on is collapsing as you speak. First of all, for these white nasses, you're speaking a language they don't understand. One of the things Jed Etsy says in here, let me just read directly from it and I'll come back to the point. He says that Americans do not have access to a galvanizing alternative language for a common national purpose. Woo, let's pause there. That's bars. This, this is the thing about it. Malcolm, Nina Simone, you, we've been saying this from the beginning. Hell, Toussaint Louverture in Haiti. We, I mean, you know, we've been saying, we don't share an identity. There is no we. But maybe you listen to Jed Etsy. He says, Americans do not have access to a galvanizing alternative language for a common national purpose. Nothing Benny Thompson could say. Nothing that uh, that Liz Cheney could say is going to reach the people for whom America is the greatest country in the world because it is a white country in their mind. Nothing you say. In fact, they hear you say that and they say, yeah. And that's why I hate you. You're a race traitor. And I hate you, N-word. Because you're right. It is the greatest country. And the reason it stays great is because we keep people like you out of here. But this man said it has no galvanizing language. So Jamie Raskin, Adam Schiff, all this brilliant rhetoric and all this will. But you won't pull the trigger. You won't, as you said, Prof hit these people over the head. Why? Because every time you raise your hand to do it, you look at them and say, but they're Americans. What the hell is that? Either you hit that cat or this thing collapses. And better, matter of fact, when you hit him, if you were going to hit him, it's still going to collapse. But the thing Etsy is saying is, which is why I want to talk to this guy, is if you create some galvanizing language, you might have a chance of getting settled in your new role as a second tier power. And you know where you can find some perhaps clues into how to do that and also how what to avoid in terms of mistakes the thing i studied in graduate school england because after 1945 their power is broken 
Right. But people saw it coming before 1945. Hell, the Frank Baum saw it coming before anything. And then in 1939, when they made the Wizard of Oz, the cowardly lion with the medals on his chest, the only thing he was lacking was courage. That was a metaphor for England, according to a lot of scholars. And I like their argument. They said, here's a guy, a toothless lion, used to be the lion, used to be the king of the jungle. He'd start taking L's, gotten old. Now he get pinks and pains and shit. Now he's scared of everything. Well, guess what? It was all an illusion anyway. It was all a dream. Therefore, you pick a medal on his chest and he got his roar back. Guess what the medal of the chest is on that? Now, y'all spent the last, not y'all, nobody here, I hope. Uh, and Oz gonna get a kick out of this. Oz, how many of them Nick Rose was lined up crying crocodile tears watching that old queen run around? Now, when the last time you saw a queen or a king in Africa treated with that kind of respect? No, it's only white kings and queens get treated. England still got a queen? Yeah, because that's the medal on the chest of Great Britain. Now, what Etsy says is, this is the mistake they made. They overreached with Brexit. United States, you better learn something. You can't turn inward now. Because guess what? The phone call is coming from inside the house. Yeah, it's named Shaquille and Manuel. It's named Chi Hao and Lin Hao. It's, named, it's over for you. In other words, you can't stop the rain. You understand? This, we live in a world, and the world lives in the United States, which was never a nation. It was a criminal settler colony grounded in whiteness. And even then, it only achieved a majority of whiteness by pulling white people in and continue. But now that is a teetering majority. And so anyway, we continue. This is what he says. He says, it is time to shelve the old habituated language of U.S. dominance to face the multipolar world. That's what Motley was telling them of the future to tell new American stories. This is his hope. He says to find and circulate those stories is a difficult but necessary task. They will have to be vivid and visceral dense with real U.S. history, right for collective affiliation. In other words, you got to tell a story that everybody can buy into. They will have to make multiracial democracy and social welfare compatible with the lived experience and popular culture of most Americans. Good luck. Not some, not half. He says, so you can't just be talking about 50% plus one. You got to come up with a narrative where everybody sees themselves in it. In other words, you're going to have to create a social structure that engages and pulls in enough of the various governance structures of these people you done defecated on that they buy in and it's not going to be with a commercial at the democratic national convention it's not going to be with opening statements from the january 6th commission that's rhetoric you have to show these people something well guess what this country has never shown people you know because guess what when it comes down to the fight they always side with them crazy ass white people that will give up their life before they give up their whiteness and guess what we all paying attention and on an international scene what me and more motley was saying in la is we know which side y'all always pick but y'all don't even hold that kind of weight anymore and that little coalition y'all got united states nato japan came with y'all two or three other people you see the rest of us sitting out this russia thing it ain't because we love russia it's because you're like come on come on wait 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 i'm thinking I'm thinking, <laughs> you know, this is a problem then in, in the 50s when it was the Bandung Afro-Asian country conference, you were at the peak of your power. So you kind of blunt that when it was the 60s and 70s during the time we started coming out of colonialism, you could undermine governments and you can make it look like you were representing good governance with the Organization of American States, with the UN. You could come in and create austerity measures with the international money fund in the world bank and tell people we're going to loan you this money but now you can't give poor people shit and you got to pay us back at this gangster interest rate and we collapse your economy by controlling it from washington dc and new york city well guess what them days is over why because china we know china ain't come on nobody no country comes to the table with clean skirts which is why she made the human human plea at the end 
However, you ain't the only game in town no more. In fact, in a minute, you're going to be the second-class game. Finally, Etsy says, that is a serious project for media, political, and academic elites, for cultural gatekeepers and the knowledge workers of all kinds. And here's where it kind of goes left for this cat. Excellent book. Y'all don't set it no more. He kind of never said it, but you really don't say it anymore. And I'm going I'm to mention something on immigrate on migration, immigration, and then for the rest of our little time together today, I want to talk about this this music piece because that's a part of it. What he's saying is creating new narratives. I, that's what the 1619 project is about, no doubt. That's what Born on the Water is about. The children's book that goes with the 1619 project, where the last panel is the little black girl with the American flag in her lap which I just laugh at. I don't want nothing to do with that damn flag. And what you don't understand is that little narrative. See, it's it's an open question for me. Not for me individually, but for me in terms of how we think about this in terms of governance, because it should be debate and conversation, which is what Motley was saying is too. I'm not sure you can hold on to a new American narrative and that flag at the same time. Not sure. In fact, I would say no. You know, because, uh, you know, what was it? Cameron and Paint the White House Black you know, stars and stripes got niggas on pipes. <laughs> in other words, because remember what Reagan and them did with the Iran-Contra hearings, them Central American countries that you don't want come up here no more, Daniel Ortega and them and Nicaragua and El Salvador and all them, that's them countries that you was pulling and Colombia, your friend, which is why half the damn rappers is named for Pablo Escobar and all them. Y'all, y'all was supporting them and they pumping the cocaine into the United States and they killing us. So I'm not sure that them stars and stripes can be redeemed. And Etsy, I'm saying, let's get a new flag. I mean, no, we can't have a new flag. Okay, so you're not willing to give up your icons, your shrines, your rituals, and your totems. We got icons, shrines, rituals, and totems. And guess what? You can make Juneteenth a, a federal holiday, but it's still ours. So now your social structure has engaged with, and so that's a step toward what Etsy is talking about, but it's still a symbolic gesture. And as you said last week and the week before, Prof, um, uh, on serious, you know, you don't get Juneteenth. It's ours. And guess what? It is ours. It is ours. But anyway, let me let me let me continue the point I was trying to make. I was about to make. I'm gonna say this on immigration, and we'll we'll make the pivot. Etsy's and others' argument that there's got to be a new concept. That's a beautiful thing for the United States of America if it can be done. What Motley is telling them is the U.S. ain't at the center of the world no more. It never really was. But what you're seeing today in my speech is part plea, part demand, and part FYI that the world has changed. And the species may be eliminated by global warming, which is why we got to get serious about this. We got to get serious about this fossil fuel. We got to get serious about this natural gas. And that we're taking steps to address it. Now, y'all can come with us or not, but at some point, we're going to have to make you come with us. And if you think we can't make you come with us, you haven't been paying attention. Because, see, food insecurity is real. You think, well, I'm, what you talking about, fertilizer? Yeah, them gas prices you talking about? That's because this, this capitalism that you've developed requires profit margin. So the prices are going up. They're talking about inflation, now perhaps potentially stagflation, a stagnant wages, steady, and then the price is still going up. You know, how long before you get food riots in the United States? How far before how long before China starts offering humanitarian aid? Well, we ain't got to go that far. We, you know, they've already done it several times. But now I want to make this point on my on immigration. Since that was the thing you'll read in the in the Western press, was the most impressive thing came out the summit. They ain't gonna talk about me or more motley. 
more people watched her speech right now, thanks to you, Professor Hunter, probably than will watch it generally at one time. And more people by the time we get to next week, what do we go now in terms of we go on YouTube, maybe like 24 to 30,000 you know, views, generally speaking, and then whoever's watching, who's clicking and watching, because we know young people sitting with families, you got elders, you got people clustering watching, so we don't know, and then, of course, they tell, and then it keeps echoing, so Neil Moore Motley is going to be a subject of conversation. The, on the, uh, the government of Barbados page, I think there were like 4,000 views when I looked at it, uh, yeah, this morning, early this morning, and so, you know, we, it's being amplified, and what I'm saying is beyond the United States, you can't trust the Western media, well, really at all. But let me get to the point I want to make from the Financial Times. This was a letter to the editor in yesterday's Times. This is from a professor, uh, those of you in the UK, Oz and everyone else, John Bateson, who's a visiting professor of management-based business school, City London University. Uh, so this is what he says, the headline, Europe needs to attract migrants and persuade them to stay. Wait, what? Now, y'all know two years ago we were talking about this. Uh, anyway, let me just read it straight. It's a short letter. He says, it is indeed true that the decline in the populations of many countries will change attitudes to immigrants, as Stephen Bush argues, the opinion page from May 31st last week, two weeks ago, a week and a half ago. He says, however, immigration is not the answer it first appears. Remember me or more Motley said, people don't leave their country because they hate their country. People don't leave live leave what they love and who they love. She was she was signaling y'all act like immigration not a problem. Immigration is a problem for the people who are driven out of where they love and live. You think them Haitians wanted to leave Haiti? You undermine their damn government. You try to collapse their economy. They go to Brazil during the World Cup. They cool for a while. Then the racists get in charge. Balanzaro and them start driving out nine black people and start talking about foreigners and shit. Even though Brazil got the largest black population in the Western Hemisphere. But then you want foreign blacks like the Haitian leaders, so they start having to leave Brazil. They leave everything, the businesses, the things they had tried to strive. They never wanted to leave Haiti in the first place, but now they're in Brazil. And then you force them out, and then they got to go north. That's the people ended up in Texas, getting whipped at by this fake-ass Texas Ranger boys who, you know, you, you, you whipped the white one. You might not go home tonight. But the point is this. He goes on, he says, however, immigration is not the answer it first appears. The International Organization for Migration estimates that there are 272 million immigrants migrants rather in the world today no migrants people moving he says these are people living in a country in which they were not born pause living in a country in which they were not born and maybe we'll end with this in a few minutes uh hazel scott of course we know it's her birthday the great pianist uh political figure you know very important sister Media personality, brilliant, brilliant sister. We know she was born in Trinidad and Tobago. Her father's actually from continental Africa. He was educated in England. You know, his, her mother, classic musician, played with Lil Armstrong, all female bands. Her grandmother, piano. I mean, she's a child prodigy, eight years old, impressed the Juilliard people. You too young to come to Juilliard, but we got to get you some training because I am in the presence of a genius. That's one of the, one of the professors at Juilliard said, Hazel Scott, born in TNT, living in New York, migrant. Go on, she says. He says, of these, of these 272 million, of these, 41.3 million are refugees. These numbers, sadly, have not been updated to include the people fleeing from the war in Ukraine. He writes, this seems like a large number. 
for 272 million. In other words, all the migrants, somebody living in a country they weren't born in, in the world, 272 million, he says, only represents 3.5% of the global population. These migrants are coming to the United States and they're taking, shut up, or not, because I'm not even talking to you no more. That percentage has remained remarkably constant, he says. It seems that the vast majority of people want to stay at home. What did Mio Moore Motley say a minute ago? There is no accelerating trend of migration. Most of the recent growth has come from the refugees of the wars in Syria, Afghanistan, and Somalia. Footnote, shout out to all the young people that I spoke to earlier this week. Um, they came, they were in town from Minneapolis, St. Paul. And of course it was beautiful, about 20, 25 of them. And, you know, we were talking, um, Laotians, Somalis, kids from DR, Dominican Republic. I mean, it's just a beautiful thing to see the U.S. It's like the U.N. in here. They came to Howard for a tour. And so some of the people in admissions asked me to come and talk to them. And I really don't come up there for a whole lot to do stuff like that. Cause I'm not selling, um, uh, I'm not, I don't, you know, but I'll talk to young people anytime you want. So I came and so we were having a conversation and we, you know, we were talking about, I, I asked them something that, uh, our friend, professor Porter asked, I said the other day, cause you know, she grew up in Rochester and they all know Rochester, Minnesota, Angela Porter from Rochester. And after Amir Locke was killed, she said, black people should just leave Minnesota. It is not safe. And so I asked them, is, is Minneapolis, St. Paul any safer? Y'all Alton Sterling, George Floyd, Amir Locke. Come on. Y'all. Is it any safer? And one of the young people, because I had my mask on, they had their mask on. I said, well, I'm going to put my mask on, too, since we, you know, doing that. We need to do that. He thought I said, is middle school safe? He said, you said, is middle school safe? Then they started laughing. And I said, no, I said, is Minnesota safe? But is middle school safe? And we got in this whole conversation about their anxieties and fears. Everybody got a pistol. Another Gil Scott hearing. It's crazy. And so these young people talking about their constant fears. All right, Minnesota made me think about it because when he said Syria, Afghanistan, and Somalia, Somali kids were there too. That's when we think about it. Let me continue now, Professor Bates, into the end. He says, people pushed from their countries tend to stay close. They are not beating on the doors of Europe, but are in refugee camps waiting to go home. Migration is also organized along geographic corridors. South America provides the continuous migrant flow into the United States and Canada. Of the international migrants within Europe, 37% come from other European countries. The balance comes from North Africa and the Middle East. For a country looking for migrants, the whole 272 million is therefore not available. Having attracted the migrants, a country then has to keep them. A recent study by the University of Washington suggests that 45% of all migrants, let's put it, 45% of all migrants return home. They go back to their families and quote, good food. He's using that metaphor, right? Mexican migrants within the U.S. provide an interesting example. The number declined by 7% between 2010 and 2019. That ain't true. There's a caravan coming. They coming from Argentina and they're finding on a map. They're coming. They're bringing rappers. They're bringing crime. Now you're president of the damn United States. Why? This whole flood demand said the number declined by 7% from Mexico between 2010 and 2019. Prior to that, 
Between 2005 and 2010, as many Mexicans went home as arrived, the population of countries such as Italy and Spain, Spain at the summit of America's agreed to a migration number. They're going to take some migrants in. Why is Spain still in this conversation? We all speak Spanish. Spain's. I read that line. I thought to myself, Spain's still holding weight in the hemisphere. Now I got to do a little bit more digging. Goes on and says, the population in countries such as Italy and Spain is forecast to decline by 50% in the next century. Mm. That's why Spain's at the table. Mm. Attitudes to migration will change, but this will not be enough to solve their problems. Attracting and keeping immigrants will be the new competition. Watch out now. Now see, y'all don't put Donald Trump in jail. Y'all let these people get away with it. He come back be the president of somebody who's worse than him, like that damn uh, five o'clock shadow inbred uh, governor of Florida. You will see the United States committing suicide. See, the trick is not going to be trying to keep people out. The trick going to be trying to get people to come. Italy and Spain get ready to crater. Spain's like, we'll take some immigrants. What you doing at the summit of the Americas? Shit, I mean, y'all speak Spanish, right? Y'all speak Spanish. Yeah, but I don't eat what y'all eat. Remember when King Juan Carlos in Spain said that you people in the Dominican Republic and all them Latin American countries, y'all don't speak Spanish, the King's Spanish. Oh, where's Juan Carlos now? Oh, shit, we put him in the basement. Can y'all come? We need some people. United States is drinking the poison of white nationalism. Mia Moore Motley is trying to let y'all know them borders is cute. But they are eroding. The Caribbean community, we've been trying to get our act together. Yeah, we take two steps forward sometimes, maybe too bad. But guess what? Grenada didn't even come. Why didn't Grenada come? St. Vincent's and Grenadines didn't even come. Why? They said because Joe Biden said Cuba can't come, Venezuela can't come. Obrador was like, well, if you ain't coming, I'm not coming. I sent my delegation. I'm not coming. And then other people was like, yeah, why are we coming in? So 20 of the 30 plus states in the hemisphere came. The rest of them didn't come. So what does that tell you? That tells you y'all ain't even hold weight like that no more. This ain't 94 when last time the United States had one and Bill Clinton was in there talking and everybody felt like you were putting stuff together. This is the same Clinton that was like, yeah, Aristide gotta go. And then the shit broke apart and he said, well, we'll put him back in. And then it's broke apart again. And he said, well, I'll go back. And then George Bush and them come in and Connelly's Rice calling the trend. He's like, don't be letting that boy come back down there now. We trying to get this thing. We need baseballs and draws out of the Dominican Republic of Haiti. We don't want no uh, un unnecessary uh, uh, supply chain. But in other words, U.S. foreign policy doesn't dictate the hemisphere like it used to. And that's what we saw. So here we are in the second week of Black Music Month. And one of the most important things that we have to do is clear space to even think through some of this stuff. I know we talked about a lot so far today. And we started with me and more Motley. And maybe next week we can do this. Um, Professor Hunter, we talk a little bit more about Juneteenth because I want to think about how you know, you know, we've covered this before. Oh, there she is. You know what? I'm going to put a pin. I'm not even going to build a transition because it would be almost too much. It makes sense in my mind, but it might not make sense. Let us pause on that Avenue of the Americas, uh, Summit, think about New York City, Summit of the Americas, and come right over and let our sister, uh, Give us a little pause. We'll spend 10, 15 more minutes. Who is this, Professor? Come on. 
Wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Go back, go back, go back. What? Please. Her? Yeah. Uh, all right. You wait, you 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 click you clicked it out, didn't you? I did. I did. No, I'll add it back. Go ahead. All right, right there at the end. Uh huh. You see how she ended on that chord with that single note? What that she does that? Was it a party or whatever you call it? When she did the run at the end, the last note she hit was on the other piano. Go back to that. I mean, just let it. Stop playing. Stop playing. Oh my God. Most of say, observe the excellence of that. Now, now some of y'all have seen Alicia Keys do something like that. This, no. It's only to pay homage to the great Hazel Scott. And if we don't remember, we'll always forget. And we'll think Alicia Keys is the first person to do it. And she's never said that she is. No. Nope. She always has paid homage to Hazel Scott because Hazel Scott is the blueprint. Um, Hazel Scott is the blueprint. Hazel Scott is the blueprint. Um, and, and before we get into her, because I'm so grateful you brought her up. You said everything we need to know is in the papers, they're in the, your books, but it's almost like a puzzle. And if you don't know where to find stuff, you know, that's the genius of you. You put this together where the thing is, and it's like, okay, and then the story is told. It's not in plain sight. If it was in plain sight, we'd all know the things mm -hmm. we need to know. It's not in plain sight. We need the dissemination. That's why some of y'all go to church to get somebody to interpret what the Bible says for you. This What's going on in the world, we can't just be left on our own devices to have the misinformation and disinformation feed our, our psyche. We need to have what you were able to do by pulling the Financial Times and Washington Post and all these papers and books and then painting the picture so we can sit and see it, having me and Motley tell the story, and then you break it down in a way that otherwise we, we won't know. And then, you know, we'll be duped into thinking the, the hearings were important and then we'll shame people for not wanting to watch it as as if it's somehow, you know, we've you know ab abdicated our leadership role by not participating in a farce. Mm. All right. Mm. I have to get out of my chest. I'm just no, saying. no, no. What you're saying is what we have to hear. Again, black thought is not wrong in thought versus everybody. It's imperative. We change the narrative. <laughs> This is why Nubia is the new normal. Are we saying we're the only ones doing it? No, but we are doing it. When you pour the clean glass of water, it becomes clear what's in the other glasses. And it also becomes clear who else has clean glasses of water. So, no, that has to be said. You know, I wouldn't, we're going to watch the hearings because we want to know. And we want to see, and we have an obligation to connect. What Jed Etsy is saying is that these conversations are driven by quote unquote thought leaders. And we talked about that a couple of years ago, thought leaders. What he misses, however, is that very few of us going to read that book. I'm going to read it right? because we all have roles to play. And now people know about the book. You ain't got to go buy that book. You ain't got to go. You know, I'm just saying I made you aware of it. And I'm saying, unlike John Jennings, unlike Tracy Sherrod, unlike Howard French, Unlike so many others who are doing great work and coming to space and be like, wow, all these people are here. Yeah, it's not even about the numbers, although the numbers continue to swell and burst because what we're doing is changing the narrative. The narrative is you got to go pay tuition. In other words, you got to go pay 40, 50, 30, $60,000 a year. Nah, 
John Jennings is in the UCAL system, UCAL Riverside, I think. Uh, what's the sister's name? Nalo Hopkinson, who wrote the introduction in the parable. So, I mean, the, she's on faculty there. I'm saying, do you really have to go pay to go to the University of California Riverside to hear John Jennings? No. Come on with us and have a, a as rich and in many ways richer and deeper because it's unfiltered conversation with connections, as you say, that are being made that you won't have at UCAL Riverside. Does that mean you got to leave UCAL Riverside? No, well, not today. One day you might decide. Why? Because as we continue to build, what's being revealed is you ain't got to, which is one of the things I told those young people this a uh, couple of days ago. They were asking me, say, well, what's the, what's the number one thing you love about Howard? I said, I love about Howard the same thing I love about any space where we're around us, the people, the conversations. They said, what's the one thing if you could change, you would change. I told them the same thing I said when we were all at Hershey. I said, I detest petty bourgeois class pretension. I detest it with my whole heart. Well, I, said, I said, how many of y'all in here, when you go to college, you be the first in your family? Hands went up. I said, okay, so y'all, you and me, we're going to have the same experience in that regard. Y'all younger than me, so you have a different experience, but y'all have the same experience. I said, I have no respect for any of these institutions when they get pretentious. I said, these people will tell you, you come in as an 18-year-old, and when you leave here as a 22-year-old, you've been made into a leader. I said, who y'all leading? I said, I know in my house, I was never the leader. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? My niece colored on my law degree. It's sitting in your head with crayons on it. Why? I gave it to my mother. Why is she going in there? And then I came back home one summer. I said, what happened? Uh, she didn't color. Well, what the hell? I can get another one. Or not. I still didn't get no. My point is that it doesn't <laughs> It doesn't diminish the licensure. It doesn't diminish the These are tools. Why would you, when you see Hazel Scott, as you say, Professor, when you see her, you seeing her daddy, R. Thomas, who was from West Africa trained, and, and you seeing really her mother, Alma. Her mother, Alma, was a classically trained, European classic trained pianist and a saxophonist. She said, Hey, Scott said, by the time I was two and a half, I could play the piano by ear. My grandmother was saying, I said, say that again, sing that again. She said, I got it. That's when they like, this child is a prodigy. Her mom then said, okay, you got to get trained. The parents separated. She moved with her mom and grandmother to New York City, 1924. She was born in 21. She's three years old. Hazel Scott's mother. This is genealogy. She played in several all-female bands, all-women bands, so she could make money. She said, um, and she was friends with, like, uh, a lot of these musicians. So Hazel Scott got an apprenticeship from the collective. So when you see her, you're not just seeing a genius individual. You're seeing a genius individual whose genius is recognized by her blood family first and then her cultural community. And she's from Trinidad. All you ADOS people, I'm going to tell y'all this one more time. Or I'll probably tell you a million more times. Don't let your master define how you view yourself. Don't let your master define how you view each other. Them Africans don't like us. You are opening your mouth, putting your fully curated by Western BS on display. Stop it. Stop it. So, you know, by the time she was 15, with all that training in the background, she on stage with William Bailey out of Red Hook, New Jersey, the Count, Count Basie Orchestra. Are you serious right now? Are we serious? She playing at Cafe Society. Remember that whole conversation we had about Billie Holiday? She's playing at Cafe Society. And of course, playing at Cafe Society and playing in many of the venues. She, and then when she starts going to make movies, she was in a movie with Mae West. She's like, I ain't wearing no damn apron because ain't no black woman coming to see her man off to go to war in a dirty apron. You got us dressed like maids. After a three-day boycott, the filmmaker said, okay, everybody take their aprons off. Damn right. Well, 
what's that gonna do for your career? I ain't gonna do much. She the first black woman to have a TV show. That was 1950, but by the end of the 1950, the damn show was off the air. Why? Because here come them damn shades of communists. All some old BS list they made up because of the places she played and because she spoke out, they're going to say she's a communist. She volunteered that same damn House on american Activities Committee, Paul Robeson and S.E. Robeson and Langston Hughes and most famously Jack Roosevelt Robinson testified before. Hazel Scott said, I'm going to, I want, here, I'm volunteering. I'm coming to talk to y'all. I ain't no communist. Nah. Well, did you play this place? Yeah. Did you play this place? I don't remember. You play this place? I don't remember. I, I take the books, the dates they book. Her husband said, don't go down there and testify to them people. Of course, her husband was Adam Clayton Powell Jr., 12 or 13 years older than her, married when he started dating her. See, the, <laughs> these are human beings. She rebuffed him at first, but he was relentless. Dude, you married. Now, your friend, who I think is a fine actor, of course, Harry Lennox, of course, who played Adam Clayton Powell, if y'all go see that movie that they made, the fictional account, it's just, it just cracks you up. Harry Lennox nailed Adam Clayton Powell, man. He chasing Hazel Scott. Dude, you man. And they had a child together, of course, Adam Third, Adam Clayton Powell Third. But they created her career because of that communism charge. She couldn't get books. She couldn't get no film. There she go. Now, see, all black women are beautiful, differently beautiful. What you see there, whether you're going to call it a tutu coolness now people think oh that's a pose she couldn't possibly know where those keys are now if you could click that photo and it turned into her playing the piano you can see she ain't got to look at them keys <laughs> we just saw her play two pianos not looking at the keys understand and so pal and uh uh scott they're a power couple unique because they're internationally known she ends up leaving the country they get divorced, but she goes and lives in France. It is attested. In fact, uh, wow, there, there are several books. Uh, Karen Chilton wrote, wrote probably the best single volume on um, Hazel Scott, Karen Chilton. I never met her, but one of my former students, uh, when the book came out, I think that's his cousin. He got her, he got her to sign a copy to me, which I cherish. Um, Hazel Scott, man, she, she spoke like seven languages. You understand? <laughs> I mean, you know, uh, Scott and Pal got married when she was 25. So I guess that would have been, what is that? She was born in 20, so 1946, 1945. They got divorced 15 years later, formally, but they've been separated from there. Um, she came back to the United States in, in 67. And, you know, resumed her career. She did. She made some more recordings. You know, she, you know, she appeared on Julia. She was in Julia. I got to go back now and look at the Julia episodes to see where she was in there. And she made transition in 81 from cancer. Young, 61 years old, in fact. Um, but Hazel Scott, it, again, oh, there they go. There they go. I, you know, Prof, I'm sure you have. I mean, given everything you 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 cross paths with Adam the Third and Adam the Fourth, huh? You you muted. Yes, yes, I have. I uh, wonder you I ever talked about. We've run for office a lot. Uh, certainly did. <laughs> both sons, both sons. You know, when I was at the Daily News, you know, they they uh, both of them um, who don't look like black men. Right, but then how do black men look? True. 
But but yeah, you wouldn't know. It's crazy, right? Because especially Adam the Fourth. I look at Adam the Fourth. I seen him. I was like, this. I mean, you could tell he's definitely Adam Clay Powell's son, but he don't. He. I think his his mom is Latina. Latina. Yeah. 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 But what the the third though? The third is the one who is like balding. He's a little bit, but he don't look like his mom to me. Yeah. What do you look like in real life? I I've never seen the third in real life. Um, let's, I'm gonna pull up a picture. Okay. Okay. But have you? Did he ever? You ever heard him talk about his mom in public? No. I mean, I, you know, again, the unconsciousness of so many young, you know, 20, 30 year old journalists, um, not steeped in Africana ways of knowing. Yes. Which 99.9 percent of the people who call themselves journalists who are black are not steeped in Africana ways of knowing. Oh. We come through. We come through, you know, you know, these these spaces where, you know, that petty bourgeois, you know, mentality that you're talking about. We're all chasing this thing to get to a place. And, you know, and mass is always giving you a pat on the head when you, you know, mirror and model the thing that makes them comfortable. So you're never really rewarded for doing anything outside of, you know, or asking those questions, which I'm now because of you, I'm a better journalist because of you. I ask Mm. better questions. So I just want to say that. I mean, you know. So no, well, I, I appreciate that. No, I, I do. I mean it, and we don't think about the importance. And this is where I would get in for today, just for a pause for a minute, as we prepare for next week. And uh, by the way, you all, I, I talked yesterday. No, day before yesterday, with, with my friend and brother Gerald Horn. He's he ain't left his house, Karen. <laughs> <laughs> Gerald said, "I ain't been I ain't been outside a mile radius of my house since this thing went on." He's sitting at his house. I want y'all, please, let's all understand this together. This is why Nubia and narrative are so important, y'all. Because with resources, I'm not talking about a whole lot of resources. Everybody do a little. We ain't nobody, one person got to do a lot. If you got a lot, you can do a lot. But if you got a little, just a little. Gerald is the Moore's professor of history at the University of Houston. Brilliant brother. Prolific writer. He's on... I told him, I said, I interviewed him. Was, we were doing, we were taping. And I said, man, you, you stay on this thing. I said, you must write in between interviews. He just started laughing, which is true. He said, I ain't never, I ain't leave within a mile of my house since March, 2020. Hmm. Sitting at his house. Brother, sitting at his house, everybody. Going through research databases. And I told him, I said, you did something. I tell my students do all the time, but you really demonstrated in what I'm about to show you all. So you went through the master's thesis and and dissertations. He said, yes, 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 yes. ProQuest is the database for that. Uh, If you are affiliated with a university or, you know, high school, some of the public system, ProQuest, all the dissertations, all the master's theses are uploaded to pretty much in the U.S. I mean, like mine is there. You you name people. Um, Then he bought a microfilm reader. Now, this is what happens when you have an endowed chair at some schools. They give you a budget separate from your salary and everything else. So you can order stuff. He bought a microfilm reader, delivered to his house, then went through interlibrary loan and just started ordering microfilm. He goes through what he has produced in the last couple of years was just published about two weeks ago, 622 pages called The Counter-Revolution of 1836. Texas Slavery and Jim Crow and the Roots of U.S. Fascism. We're going to talk about this next week. When I tell you Gerald has completely cratered any concept, he says Texas is the most important state. Remember that book he wrote, The Counter-Revolution of 1776? This is the one when the 1619 Project people became aware of it. (laughs) 
they really got mad at him. Slave resistance and the origins of the United States of America. So he's saying what happened in the British colonies in 1776, that was a revolution. It was a counter-revolution because the fight was to keep them people in line. They was trying to colonize. This is, well, 1836, when them white boys ran out there to Mexico, northern part of Mexico, and tried to take the top of Mexico off, got caught up, and the United States comes in in the Mexican War. We talked about that 1845. I won't get too deep into it. We'll talk about it next week. Anyway, I went through all that to say that if you want to do a thing, you can do it. The best interviewer I've ever seen, because he knows us, Cole, Larry Crow. So somebody's talking, Crow, they'll, they'll, they'll mention a name or a place or a year. Crow will ask, oh, you said such and such. Do you know so-and-so? And it opens up, and then they start talking about something they would never have thought about. So... If he were interviewing Adam Clayton Powell III, and he was talking about, yeah, and then Paris. Oh, yeah, you did live in Paris. What was your favorite? Where'd your mom take you to eat? Oh, yeah, that's him. He kind of, he got a little bit of both of them in there. The softness in his face, I would say, is mom. Yeah, Adam Clayton Powell III. See, Larry would ask him about some place to eat in Paris or a song his mom played. And then if you want to get at Hazel Scott, you could ask, what, what, tell me about your mother. Or you could say, if you hear something, like, oh, your favorite food is so-and-so. Oh, I heard your mom like, well, that reminds me. My mother used to cook. Well, actually, her mother caught her that. In other words, you've got to know, you know what I'm saying, to ask the question that will elicit the governance answer. Because otherwise, you just start, oh, yeah, my mother was a pianist, and she got in, you know, House on American Activities Committee. No, no, no. I want to know, did you ever eat any foods from Trinidad, Jabago? What was your favorite food? So-and-so. Oh, that's a Trinity dish, right? That's not even Puerto Spain, right? That's rural. Well, actually, my mother's grandfather. In other words, see, that's when you start. That's where you get a Dr. Amon, Sunyata Amon, who's going to lead you through the food. Through all of those pieces, all of that science and technology, we're talking about food technology. That leads us to movement and memory, which leads me to the moment I want to end with today in terms of thinking of Hazel Scott. When we were talking about Hazel Scott the other day, Professor Hunter, I just put on some Hazel Scott. And listening to her go up and down them keys, just brought back a flood of experiences because some of the songs she was playing, she's got a rendition of T for Two. She's got this song swinging on nothing. She's got, and I'm thinking now about Lester Young to the tango. Lester Young with the tape rolling in the studio. Lester Young unaware that the tape is rolling. Lester Young known for saying all kind of nasty stuff when he's in between takes to the tango to the tango. I'm listening to Hazel Scott going up now these keyboards with this brilliant lush arrangement of two the tango and i'm thinking about lester young saying drop your draws drop your draws drop your draws hey man the tape is gonna take them off tape oh all right here we go. let's go back let's go. to the tango <laughs> but i'm saying you 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 see the process of creating music and here's where i went in last night Seven o'clock Eastern Standard Time over at the National Museum of African American History and Culture. As I mentioned, Chuck D. Carlton Rittenhauer, Brother Chuck D. In a kind of small crowd, really, but it was streamed. You go on the website of the National Museum, you'll see. I uh, had a conversation about this new piece he's done. These are the songs that changed the world, shook the world. And he was talking about the distinction between consuming music and listening. And it made me think about the fact that like one of the things I'm not doing in the fall, God bless whoever's going to do it now because I know they ain't figured it out, but you know what? You know, they, they know how to reach me or not. Uh, I'm not going to do the freshman seminar. 
Again, this is the new normal. We're coming into this space. And so much what we're doing, what we would do in that class of 13, 1400 students, what I still do in all my other classes, Manifestation African States class, Black Aesthetics, Education in Black America, you name the classes. I always start the class with music. But when you're in an auditorium with 500, 600, 700 students, 1,000 students, 1,500 students, you put on music. I'm very deliberate. Chuck D was last night was talking about music and how it curates feeling. And he said, when I was growing up in the house, you know, we hear Superstition, Stevie Wonder. When you when that song got put on the record player, that song I will always associate with cleaning up the house with chores. <laughs> now, I don't know how many of y'all had the song that your parents put on the, whatever the eight track the, the, and that was the song they cleaned up the whole house to my daddy back in love again ltd i know that song. <laughs> when you hear that song come on every time i move i lose when i'm coming every time i turn around na, 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 na. my daddy got a white rag in his back pocket cleaned up the whole damn house on a saturday the man that worked to his fingers to the bone sometimes two jobs money through friday saturday clean up the house you know at night him, my mom sitting around. My whole world turns misty blue. I don't know if y'all. Oh, 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 oh. <laughs> y'all know that song. I mean, it, but Chuck D was what he was saying last night was these are the songs that anchored the childhood, and they and you absorb them. Hazel Scott, your music her whole time. Her mother, her mother's mother. You hear that kind. Of, they moved to New York City. Surround her with musicians. You hear that music. They at the house. Then when she moves to Paris. Lester Young and them over Hazel Scott House. I know Adam Clayton Powell III got stories about that. All these people come in here. I'm saying all that to say this. The grounding Chuck D was talking about yesterday, he said, now we have a couple of generations of folk who these companies have literally washed over those rituals. And he says, I ask young people now, I say, what's the song that's indispensable to you? From the last five years, you say, I got to listen to this song to reset my mind. He said, that's why I love Kendrick so much. Because most of the, they can't name a song. But then there's some artists that punch through and you hear. And I think about, sometimes I would play music before class, especially the big class, the seminar class, playing John Coltrane. The students would ask, who is that? Or they would always say, oh, my granddad used to play this. Or my dad played this. Or that's my favorite, you know. And then if I want to do something contemporary, probably the point of concession before it slid off into the ditch i might play you know something like mary j blige i can love you better you know with little kim and to see a bunch of children who weren't even around start singing that song like they was there that's what lets you know how the hell did you oh my, my mama played this song all the time sitting here <laughs> they play that mary j blige once i told you twice skip the oh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, before the plastic surgery, before the but all that stuff. Yeah, uh-uh. Who gonna love you like you like I do? Huh? What? <laughs> Mary Blige, be my witness. <laughs> this is the whole point. You know, it's a it is a governance. This is this is cultural meaning making. But here's the distinction between cultural meaning making and movement and memory. Here's where I'm going with it. Listen to Chuck D last night, and I encourage y'all. He was only there for an hour. He had to catch a plane. He was come from Toronto. He's going back to LA somewhere, man. He uh, he's talking about the importance of culture, music in this specific case, to shape our sensibilities. And you have to have 
cultivated ears. He says, you have to be able to listen. The day after the election of 2016, we told the freshmen and everybody else in the, in the university, come to the auditorium, come to Crampton Auditorium. We're going to have a conversation about this. So we very quickly scrambled and put together some faculty, some folks to come and talk about to interpret. And as people were coming in, I, I told, you know, my brothers and sisters who run Crampton, I said, put load this, load this song. I thought this love of yours was true. Didn't I think it, baby? <laughs> Didn't I blow your mind this time? <laughs> In other words, y'all gonna y'all gonna finally get the message. Didn't I blow your mind this time? Some of y'all confused. But I'm saying when you walk into the room and you got a 1,500 people coming in and you playing that song, what we're trying to do is get you in the right mind to have this conversation. So what we're not going to do is have a long conversation about how did this happen? No, you've been disabused of an illusion. And rather than preach it, rather than lecture it, rather than question and answer it, let's just play the song, you know? And then after that was on, my favorite, Bobby Blue Bland, I pity the fool that falls in love with you <laughs> and expect you to be true. Now, see, that's what they should have played at the hearings, but they're gonna have hearings all June. They ain't gonna play that. Why? Look at the people. That's Bobby Blue Bland. He used to play. How many times, Congressman Thompson? Have you been in the audience at the Casino Riverboat and Bobby Blue Bland played that in Mississippi, brother, outside Pittsburgh? How many times, Baba, have you been down there near Biloxi and Bobby Blue Bland played that on the waterfront? How many times? And yet you still gotta sit at the United States Congress and act like you got a country. Why? Because Joe Biden is acting like you got a hemisphere. Then people, me and Motley looking like, look, I'm gonna give you one more warning, but I pity the fool who falls in love with you and expect you to be true. Hey, look at the people. I know you wonder what they're doing. They just sitting here watching you make a fool of me. In other words, th th this is the whole point. You, the music, people tell music with a message. The music carries all that. But if you have been brought up in a culture, it doesn't require you to listen. This is what Chuck was talking about last night. It, he said, he said, now we have generations that listen with their eyes. You got to see the visual. He says, even when he's talking, he's talking about a song uh, that uh, Kendrick Lamar did uh, with Nipsey Hussle's lyrics. He said, people liked it, but then the young people got to see the video. And they say, oh, now we go back. But it wasn't no videos for us. And he talked about how music is made, how it's curated. He talked about the greatest archivists in music during the hip hop generation were the DJs because they had to know the music and they not only knew the music they knew who was playing on the records they knew who which records they wanted they would scrape the labels off so the other djs couldn't see what they was doing but they had memorized who was on these records i mean this is this is the type of intellectual work that is necessary now when we think about that we have to remind ourselves that these rituals now i want to end with this question but as we preview juneteenth cultural meaning making is what any group of people do in any moment to mark their time whatever music they create whatever dance they create whatever culture they create filmmaking they create movement and memory is how people a collective of people a governance formation a, a community remembers things across time and space and here's the trick things change what jed etsy is saying in his book the future of decline anglo-american culture at its limits is that we got to come up with new rituals 
We got to come up with new totems. I'm using my language now, borrowed from Robert Frears Thompson. New shrines of sorts. Now, he ain't going to go so far as to say new shrines. Why? Because the United States of America has its shrines. It has its totems. A totem is like a portable shrine. That's what the flag is. So everybody wearing a flag lapel, sitting there saying, we have to do this, what's right for democracy. That thing on your chest is guaranteed to work more for them people you talk you talking about critiquing than it is for you. And the more you cling to that, the, the, the less chance you're going to be able to build something new. Now, we come up with a new totem, but you won't want to do that. We're going to come up with new shrines. So you concede Juneteenth. Okay, what's that? That's a new ritual. No, it ain't no new ritual. It's our ritual. You want to share this ritual? Okay. Hey, hey, get your cousin. What? They got like ice cream in the Walmart. Can you get your cousin? Oh, you know what? F that. But then the next generation comes along not knowing the roots. They may go buy that Juneteenth ice cream. The whole point is that the rituals, this is why we have to talk about it. We talked about it before. We talked about it last year. We talked about it a year before last. But here's the point. Rituals mean every time it comes back around, it's an opportunity to rethink and to put it in the context of where you are now. Movement and memory. Memory, movement, and memory. Rituals reinforce probably two of the purest rituals African people have created in the diaspora, certainly in North America and the United States, family reunions and homecoming. These are the rituals that we come together and redo, you know? Juneteenth is a ritual which we're going to have a little fun with next week because Gerald is talking about several Juneteenths. He talks about two Juneteenths, not only 1865, but two years later, Maximilian, who was the French puppet in Mexico, who was installed by the French in there trying to turn Mexico, among other things, back into a slave uh, uh, country because they had abolished enslavement under a African descended president of Mexico, believe it or not, in the 19th century. He was executed on June 19th, 1867. And he, Gerald uses that to frame the relationship African people have had and indigenous people have with this settler colony called the United States. And he says Texas is the key to it because Texas and Texas, them white boys wanted to kill everybody, all the Native Americans, all the black people. They couldn't do it, but they got the United States pulled in. And the next thing you know, Compromise of 1850, you get California, you get New Mexico, you get Nevada. That's all Mexico. The point Gerald is making is that this is an ongoing fight. He said the Civil War, when they surrendered to Appomattox in Virginia, that was just a pause. The white boys was going to try to get Mexico in through the French domination and basically keep the fight going. They all fled to damn Mexico City and they was going to keep the thing going. But what broke their back was the resistance. And he says that resistance continues to today. Shovel mouth bastard Greg Abbott. You can't stop the rain, baby. You might want to watch me a more motley. Mr. Energy Stingy with your little energy stingy friends. Why? Because Texas is far from being settled. Your whiteness is shrinking like the whiteness in Spain and Italy. Your whiteness is shrinking like the rest of the world. And guess what? You try to put a wall up at the same time other people trying to beg people to come. The people who colonize the people you try to put a wall up to keep out from their country. The country that taught them that Spanish trying to get them to come near. Why? You're going to die in ignominy. But before you die physically, you're gonna die culturally, you're gonna die politically. But you what me or more Molly, like you gotta keep you 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 have to keep we have to stop you from killing us, and that's the global. Well, I was gonna say, unless they get us to kill ourselves, that's right. Unless they infect us with anti-blackness that uh, allows us to be conspirators in our own demise, which they've done very masterfully, masterfully. Yeah. 
Um, can we end with this video that um, I actually found? A, um, it's a TED Talk. Oh. Uh, Michael Smith, pastor, uh, gave a TED Talk about Black music since it's Black Music Month and yes. the power of that. I just want to play a little bit of it. Dr. Yes, please, please, please. We're going to get into Juneteenth again, but um, I'm just... No, this is important because when you said that to me and I watched it, Chuck D was saying what he's saying which blew my mind. It's like you read my mind. So go ahead. <laughs> to your point, how, how you go to the social structure or to, to white sources to, you know, we're going to go oh. to a white source right now to tell a, tell a story about where we are and how we are so easily uh, duped. So I'm going to share my screen and hit the right song that celebrates murdering another person. And then a person says, I'd like to put that on my station. Another person said, I'd like to pay for it. And then there's people out here in the audience that go, I'd love to hear it as long as it's black eyed. Because even white people buy rap music, buy this type of stuff, because we know that when we want to hear about killing each other, we know who to turn to for that type of inspiration. We call it our music. We say we own it. White people buy more rap than black people. Yeah, but we're very careful to turn it down at the stoplight when other black people are there. Why? Because we know we're just pretending for them. It's, it's more authentic and real. I always ask the companies, what about your name? What about your brand? What about your value? And the largest radio company in the world said this. It's okay that we only have drug dealers on our black youth stations. We only have murders on our black youth stations. We support black charities. We give out water at the Martin Luther King Parade. I think we've got it covered. We bought them off. Now, people get upset, the smartest guys in the room again. You're talking about censorship. I don't believe that. I believe in I believe in free art. Make whatever you want. I believe you should make music about anti-Semitism. I believe you should make music about killing dogs. I believe in this country you should make music uh, uh, about uh, bashing homosexuals and driving them behind trucks. I believe you should make music about uh, stringing people up on, on, on trees. I believe you should make music about killing Whitey. I believe you should make all that music. But I also believe that in the mainstream marketplace, people should hesitate associating their name with certain content. You know, there's certain stuff you can't buy at the store, certain stuff you can't get on iTunes because their brand doesn't want it. But if you want to hear black people celebrating killing black people, they got thousands and thousands and thousands of those things to sell you. I don't think it's about censorship. I think it's about American cultural hypocrisy. Because here's the truth. These black entertainers, they can't sing just about anything. There's some stuff that'll get them fired and they get dropped and they get fired and they get slapped on the wrist and they get disciplined all the time. Why? Because sometimes they step over the bounds. A very famous case is what happened with Rick Ross. Rick Ross is the Mammy Two Shoes, one of the many Mammy Two Shoes of our day. He's, he's a black entertainer in a world carved out for him and a role carved out for him by white entertainment companies. And one day he talked about, in the middle of a song that celebrated dealing drugs and killing blacks, he made a reference to date rape. And when he made that reference to date rape, that set social media on fire. That got 100,000 petitions in 24 hours. Hey, buddy, date rape is no joke. That had white people standing outside of Reebok in New York saying, you better take this seriously. We're tired of a rape culture in America. One line in one song moved the masses. And you know what Reebok did? Did they stand by him and say, hey, we believe in freedom of speech. We believe in freedom of expression. It's just a song. Calm down. No, they fired his tail on the spot. The president came out and said, this goes against our high standards. He's gone against the values of our brand. Shame on Rick Ross. We're disappointed. He doesn't know how serious date rape is. And when I saw that, I thought, wow, how convenient. Isn't that amazing? But here's what really happened. It's not their brand. It's not their values. Rick Ross went off script. He was hired to get black customers, and they think that black customers go with black bait. And in America, black bait is the hypercriminalized, hypersexualized portrayal of black people. And as long as he had sung about that, the stuff that got him hired, he still have a job at Reebok. But when he touched other sensitivities that affect us, he lost his job. See, the truth is, it's not they that need to change. It's we that need to change. 
We, we created the lies. We created them for our profit. We, the, we own the companies. We own the record labels. We own the advertisers, and we keep putting it out. And it's this that's got to change. I thought about it. You know what? I, I wonder if White Mike could get anybody's attention on this. So I stood outside of a Walmart. And I said, hey, uh, I don't think killing cops and killing blacks is very cool. And you know what? It only took seven weeks of Mike Mike standing out there. And they wrote a letter and said, yeah, we don't think it's cool either. We're going to pull our name off of that. The largest retailer in the world had never considered that maybe their commercial shouldn't be right before or after a song about young black men being gunned down. And I realized this, the black murder is normal, but it should not be. And I realized the importance at the coffee table, at every headline, every pastor's gathering, every family gathering to say, you know what? These black lives matter. It's not just another black kid. These are human beings. I'm doing my best in every way, shape and form. Talks like this everywhere I can go to say, you know what? I was born in a world where black murder was normal. My kids were born into a world where black murder is normal, but I don't want to die in a world where black murder is normal. And my five years or 10 years away, I don't know, but I'm screaming as high as I can. Let's feel this pain and let's lift our voice to tell the lies. They are not criminals. They are not deviants and they're lives are just as important as ours right okay now how do we prop how do we because he, he did that he got out of walmart now i'm sure i'm certain we can both think of friends people we know who would say okay now i can't feed my family because they took it out in other words hip-hop I, that, that's how i make my money now i'm just now i was thinking yeah, yeah but then i thought wait wait so you're saying there are people who can't feed their families without perpetuating the myth of black violence and yes. black debauchery and black quality. They can't feed their family unless they're able to. And, and when you brought up Rick Ross, that ain't even his story. He's telling the story of somebody named Freeway Ricky Ross. He stole and borrowed an entire narrative no put on that man's skin and created a whole that's right. industry around that's right that, that wasn't his story no. so what so what you're saying is there are people that can't feed their family without without that, the marketing well, base that is then allowing us to kill one another that's what they would say but i'm saying right. I, but that wasn't where i was that wasn't the that was the first step but then i thought to myself well you're right you shouldn't have to this is another thing chuck d was saying i was watching some other folks saying the same thing lord jamar was saying that too i was watching some he was saying he said the culture always outpaces human culture always outpaces capitalism so in the early days of hip-hop this was not the narrative and so you know lord jamar was like we had a record deal we out there and we was like yo we be in the studio like they really letting us say this the devil couldn't have been the devil and he said once they figured out oh and then he said we can make more money with the killing stuff that's when you see the industry shape that narrative. Chuck D is saying the same thing. They went, you know, he said, what happened to BDP? What happened to me? No, what happened is these companies did this. Now, I said it to say this. After that, he said, well, why did y'all stop making the positive music? Why did y'all stop making the content? He said, we didn't. It was the platforms that drowned it out. Again, this is why narrative and newbie is so important. We're breaking through now as it gets momentum because then the next movie, we want to join you all, which brings me to the second step of what I was thinking. I was like, would you stand out there with those same signs and say, y'all shouldn't be selling, not that they would sell DVDs anyway, but what's the whatever the equivalent of us, you shouldn't be selling Godfather DVDs. You shouldn't be selling Mission Impossible DVDs. In other words, it was the violence of Settler Colonial. It was the violence of the Wizards Howard. French's point, if y'all had never invaded Africa, you don't know how African state development would have went. Mia Amore Motley in 2022 is saying we have to come up with a new thing, but much of the new thing she's going to come up with, like Hazel Scott's music was inherited through her genes and through the training of her family. 
a lot of what will come out of Latin America and the Caribbean will be indigenous. This is what the president of Bolivia, another person who is considered a leftist government. No, when you say leftist, what they're saying is there are indigenous solutions for this. When she says six and 12 month fertilizer, she ain't talking about your scientists coming from MIT, University of Chicago and MIT to talk about. No, she's talking about get out of the way of these African people who know how to cultivate this land and subsidize us on the markets. Now, see, that's a problem, which is why I say this, this pastor who is saying it right. I'm saying the sign should be get rid of all the violence in Walmart. But see, they're going to look at you like, no, we gave the Godfather 100 million awards. We gave Quentin Tarantino a billion rewards for Kill Bill and, and Matt Neiman, all these. Why do black people have to be? And I'm not saying we at this point we have to be because somebody got to lead it. But whiteness is never interrogated, even in the moments when the issue is interrogated. No, Bo boycott all the violence. Oh, but now you got a problem because Tom Cruise is not going to give up. Top Gun, he's 188 years old and got back in a cockpit <laughs> with Navy propaganda because you love your military. You will go bomb somebody. You're not a hero. You're a killer. But when black people come up shooting each other with pistols, following white people with billion-dollar airplanes bombing each other, the problem is the black gangsters. No, the gangsterism came from you. And that's, I think, what we have to... I don't know how we do that. I mean, I, 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 I say one other thing. I'm when we get off here in a second, I got to go get dressed and go because um, Roy Anderson, our brother, who is uh, was a stunt man in Hollywood. I don't know if you ever interviewed him. Oh yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm gonna send you his information. Roy, brilliant brother. He was a stunt man. He knows the history of black stunt men. In fact, Larry interviewed a stunt man. I don't know if he interviewed, uh, but he goes back to Cosby, of course, with I Spy. He forced them to do, you know, somebody do my stunts, and he opened up the black stunt man. But anyway. Roy is a filmmaker. He made a film on Nanny, uh, the Maroon, the Maroon Town. But this latest one debuts here in D.C. this afternoon at five o'clock over at the American Film Institute in here in Silver Spring, downtown Silver Spring. It's called African Redemption. Lou Gossett is in it. Danny Glover is in it. Uh, Prime ministers in the Caribbean. He talked to all the Jamaicans. And by the way, Oz sent the thing. Shout out to Jamaica. They're getting ready to kick the queen off their headline, too. They're going to write a constitution and she will not be the head of state in Jamaica. Titular head. Sorry, uh, I know y'all love y'all queen in the British Empire. But Roy, the film is called African Redemption. It's the story of Marcus Garvey. It's about an hour and a half long. This is the D DC has a Caribbean and an African film festival. And the, the Caribbean film festival starts uh, started yesterday. But today they're going to do African Redemption. And I'm, I'm going to connect y'all because he, he won a lot of awards. Trinidad Tobago. He was out of L.A. at the Pan-African Film Fest. He and his wife. I mean, he raised money for years and it is it's a film that will make you cry, will make you cheer. It will make you learn a lot. He just he destroys all these myths around Marcus Garvey. So if you if, if African Redemption comes around, y'all make sure you get you, you see it. He's look. I think they're looking for a distributor now. Hazel Scott. My God. Well, I just want to just I'm going to uh, keep it up. Uh, let me see how I can figure out how to do this. OK. Um, oh, and happy night now. We were finishing Parable of the Sower. And you know, after that, we do Parable of the Talents for two weeks. So, yeah. all right, Nubians, y'all got your, uh, you know, your marching orders. And of course, tomorrow is uh, Maroon's Medicine Maroon's chest. Medicine Chest. I didn't say this to you, Prof, off camera. We were thinking, I talked to Senyata briefly this uh, week, just for a second, about she just she published a piece on the foods of Juneteenth in the Washington Post yesterday. So if y'all go on and look, she's talking about the red drink, the red, all, and what red means. Now, you know, she's had that conversation with us many times. You know what I was thinking? Since 
next Saturday be the day for Juneteenth. I wonder should we just do a meetup, like a, a, a virtual meetup, and go through some of that red. Since I mean, since y'all think Juneteenth is about y'all, no problem. Let's get Dr. Amin in here. We talk about Juneteenth from a completely different. I don't know. <laughs> I'm totally open to it. I think that is uh, amazing. I'm trying to find her article right now, uh, so I can post it. But uh, you know, we'll put it in Nubia. We'll yeah, have it. We'll yeah. Have it. You just you just put it in. So. All right. All right. Love y'all. Love, Love you. Thank you, Nubians. Thank you, Dr. Carr. Appreciate Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So much. And we'll see y'all in the Nubian streets. Mm -hmm. I got to get back. I got to finish uh, rereading. Yes, Octavia, I got to finish Octavia. This um, the, Professor Hunter is not playing. Y'all, when is this going to drop? Probably still working it out. We, 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 your race and I have been like in Carl okay. in, in the lab with it. Hopefully, it'll be uh, ready for her birthday, which is what we want to do is to honor her. Uh, but I'm at chapter 19. I got to finish this book. Oh, we got time. A little one word at a time. It's uh, I, I went back and looked at the graphic novel, and I'm looking at the two, and I'm just saying, you know, John Jennings and Damian Duffy, man, look. It's a different world. Like he talked to us about us Monday night. What they do is so, and like he said, he's I'm living in South LA and I'm looking at this. I'm thinking about what is I'm reading. I'm thinking, so that's why I used all those reds, all those blood. I mean, it's like, yo, man. Hey, y'all, if you're not yet in newbie, you please. This is a this is the new normal. Let's be jailbreaking it now. We jailbreaking it. But come with a brick. No, come with a brick. I'm bringing something that will add to our growth. Um, that's exactly that's exactly right. All right, Dr. Love Carter, you. thank you. All right, we're going to finish with her. Let her have a solo layout, full screen. Boom. Wow. <laughs>